One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. Being dogs properly and responsibly. That's what we're trying to do. We can't do it anymore. I was so angry listening to him. A hundred euro is all we'll get, basically, for our baby. Between the job and Christmas, you know, you could slip in a bank holiday in, you know, late November, early December. Join the conversation. Call 0818-969696. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96FM. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Parks 96 FM. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Well, it will be the Opinion Line with PJ. He's back tomorrow. So this is the uh, the, the last day of uh, our little two weeks adjourned together. I'll be put back in my box for a few weeks now and I, I'll, I'll be back in October. Okay, so back in October. It's Gareth O'Callaghan here till 12 midday. I hope you had a lovely bank holiday weekend. Uh, lots of stuff to talk to you about and to to, to d- dig into this morning. Um, lovely photographs on lots of the papers this morning. Front page of the Irish Times. Homecoming Queens, Camogie, All-Ireland champions return to Cork. We will return to that in a, a short while this morning. But let's start with a story that not just Cork City and County, but the entire country and abroad is talking about and has been talking since Friday. Convicted killer no long is set to spend the rest of his life in jail after his historic conviction on Friday for the murder of vulnerable Cork woman Nora Sheehan 42 years ago. The conviction followed a Garda cold case review and hinged on advances in DNA and forensic evidence since the killing. Remarkable scientific stuff. And... Uh, We'll talk more about that in a moment. I'm joined right now by Liz Dunphy from the Irish Examiner, who covered uh, some of the trial. Liz, good morning. Good morning, Gareth. How are you doing? Very well. Uh, I've been reading so much material over the weekend on this. It doesn't make for easy reading, that's for sure. But it, it made Irish legal history this case, didn't it? It did. It's the longest running murder trial in Ireland. I mean, it's an incredible achievement, really, after such a long time to bring, you know, No Long, who has now been convicted of murder, to justice. It must have been an incredibly difficult process for, you know, her poor family who, you know, she had three sons who were left without a mother grandchildren who she never got to meet. Um, her family actually gave a really powerful uh, victim impact statement after the trial about, you know, what her loss meant to them and how difficult it's been to them. Also, I was kind of struck when when I was actually in the in the trial that, you know, 
no longer would walk in often in a murder trial the the suspect is already in custody you know so so they're kind of either brought in you know by guardy mm-hmm. and handcuffs or they're appearing via video link but this time you know he was walking free into the court and you know sitting amongst the family essentially sitting just you know meters feet away from them and um yeah it just must have been so difficult for them you know you just hear such harrowing harrowing evidence um about you know what happened to her what what was presumed to have happened to her the state that her body was found in and to listen to that knowing that the suspect is is so close to you and a free man and has been a free man for all those 42 years you know it's it must be incredibly difficult but luckily um they got the results that that I presume they were hoping for and you know he's he's behind bars now and realistically you know he's 74 now and he got the mandatory life sentence um if you're convicted of murder you get a life sentence so a life sentence you can now apply for parole after 12 years but mm. the average sentence, the average time you spend in jail is about 18, 19, 20 years. So, you know, realistically, he, he, he will most likely die in jail. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, this is, it, it's 42 years ago now, Liz. Uh, the, a whole generation has grown up probably never hearing, uh, ne- never having heard of Nora Sheehan or no long. Tell us a little bit about Nora Sheehan. Yeah, so Nora Sheehan, um, she was a 54-year-old mother of three when she died. She was originally from Crookstown um, in, in County Cork, and um, she was said to have lived by her family, lived a very you know happy, normal life in Crookstown. And then she met who would become her husband, um, uh, James uh, Sheehan, and she moved up to the city. Uh, they lived in, in the south side of, of the city, in the suburbs, and um you know, she she was very much loved by her family, by all accounts, by the sounds of it. Uh, she had three sons, as I said. She lived, she was described by her family as, you know, a modern woman ahead of her time. She wanted to work and contribute um, to the family and she went out to work in a hospital. But the, the court heard that, unfortunately, she had some kind of an injury, an accident while working. And um, I, I think she became kind of ill after that. Perhaps it, it was a head injury, we don't yeah. know, but her her um, behaviour was described as being a bit eccentric um, after that and she was also described as being a bit vulnerable but um, her family said that she was very opinionated and you know loving, caring, she loved children she loved um, animals um, but also it was described in course that um, she had this habit of kind of waving at um, waving at passing vehicles and and trying to talk to people about this, this kind of theory that she had that there were some kinds of somewhat nefarious goings on at a local hospital and she'd kind of call out to traffic to open the boots and bring out the bodies and there was some of this bizarre behaviour kind of um, described in court um, which was also seen unfortunately on, on the last night that she she was seen alive um, but it was also said that while she was working at that hospital that she used to bring her kind of lovely warm country charm to the people working there and really you know enrich you know the, the patients lives there um, so all around a kind of warm loving very much loved person um, but also with some vulnerabilities um, so yeah on the last day that she was seen alive she there'd been a dog fight outside her house and she had gone outside to break up the dog fight and unfortunately got bitten on the arm in the process so she went to the nearby South Infirmary Hospital um, where she was, I think, treated for tetanus and her arm was bandaged up and she walked home. And it was it was on that walk home that um, a number of witnesses said they saw her waving at cars, um, that behaviour that I mentioned earlier. Mm. And I think she was last seen at 4.05am that morning out waving, waving at cars. 
Um, so yeah, that was that was the last sighting of her alive, unfortunately. That was at five past four on the morning of the 7th of June. That was Brian Coleman had left his girlfriend's house and saw a woman in a long overcoat on Vickers Street waving at cars. Tell me That's about... That's it, exactly. T- 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 no long... Uh, a sex offender with 31 previous convictions. Can you take us back a little bit and tell us what you know about No Long? Yeah, so um, No Long um, actually, I think, also came from from a really loving kind of stable family. Um, but he um, had a different trajectory in life, definitely, um, than Mrs. Sheehan. He, uh, he he spent some time in the UK in the 60s when he worked with the, the British Army Um he basically wrapped up, as you said, 31 previous convictions. Um, there was also an additional, it, it was heard in court when the jury wasn't present, that there was also uh, a rape allegation, um, which which Gardy were investigating, but with the witness did, decided not to make a formal statement about in the end. Um, but there was a, a sexual assault um, charge dating back from, I think it was 1971. So about 10 years before Mrs. Sheehan um, disappeared you know um so that was that was an old it was under older legislation so i think the charge was an attempt to ravish ravish an attempt at carnal knowledge as opposed to more modern um sexual assault charges um there was also a a kind of common assault charge in with that as well so you know by all accounts a nasty a nasty attack so he was a convicted sex offender at the time of um, of Mrs. Sheehan's disappearance, um, and that that record probably alerted Gardy to the fact that he could be a suspect in this case as well. He was actually in the area where Mrs. Sheehan was living, um, visiting a friend just the night before. Um, you know, so he, he could have been kind of placed roughly in the area, and he was actually arrested by Gardy in the days after her body disappeared and he was actually charged as well a short time later he was charged by the DPP with her murder um, in July so she, she her body was found in June 1981 and um, her he, he was charged by the DPP with her murder in July so like he was picked up by Gardy a very very short time later a charge was made very swiftly um, but there, there were just a lot of um, a lot, a lot of very of unusual yeah. happenings. Yeah, yeah. And very unusual happenings, really. So the the um, pathologist who had conducted the postmortem on Mrs. Sheehan's body, he actually died in August. So so basically, the, you know, no long was charged in July. And then in August, the pathologist died. And at the time, evidence couldn't be admitted, couldn't be heard in court by by um, a witness who was deceased. So a, a law came up, uh, came into force in 1992, which changed that. But at the time, you couldn't you couldn't hear when, when evidence from a deceased witness. So so without the without you know the pathologist's yeah. report they felt that a cause of death wasn't possible and they couldn't proceed with the trial so it was thrown out so i mean he was incredibly lucky i suppose you'd have to say in a way that 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 happened and incredibly unlucky for mrs sheen's family and you know for 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 people who unfortunately suffered assaults as they did afterwards um you know he's a number of charges for assault i think the most recent one was in 2014 um and I, the judge actually remarked in, in that trial how volatile he was and how unusual it was for a man and i think he was in his 60s or a, a, a man older at the time you know to be involved in such a, a violent assault i think he was he was um charged with you know trying to assault someone with with an iron bar so quite serious 
assault charges. Um, so yeah, four of his convictions were actually in the UK. As I said, he spent some time in the UK when he was working for the British Army. And I was speaking to a, a very renowned um, de- former detective in, in the UK over the weekend who said that, you know, his DNA profile could potentially be used in the future to be linked to any cold case investigations that they have going on over there in, our, in areas where, where Long may have spent some time. So who knows? Um, a, a number of a number of details only became evident following the conviction of Long uh, last Friday. Now, this would be the 11-member jury since July 13th have been shown some very graphic details and have been uh, told during the proceedings of the precise details. But there were, there were a number of details that were withheld from the jury. Can you tell me, Liz, why did they do that? Just for the benefit of those of us listening who might not be aware of legal argument and how some information can be withheld from the, the case itself. Yeah, there was actually quite a lot of evidence withheld from the case itself. One thing which is always withheld is um, generally is previous convictions. So, you know, we mentioned that he had 31 previous convictions, including some for sexual assault um, and assault causing harm. So um, basically they would be withheld generally anyway, because it would be viewed that they could prejudice the trial so that if, you know, a jury is supposed to judge um, to make their judgment based on the facts presented in front of them and the facts alone. So any kind of prejudicial material, any information which which could be seen to, you know, sway um, a jury's decision in one way or the other, which isn't presented as fact in the case is 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 omitted from court. Um, so so that would be quite standard that you know previous convictions would be would not be heard in court. Um, and then other other evidence also wasn't heard um, which uh, kind of on, on similar similar um, for similar reasons basically. So like he you know the fact that he was actually arrested and charged with her murder back in 1981 that was also omitted from court. And then there was a lot of legal arguments, you know, where the defense actually did definitely, you know, put up a, a strong fight. Um, they so a lot of a lot of their points were taken up in legal arguments. So they argued that you know there had been culpable delay, so that the Gardaí, basically the Agarda Cold Case Investigation Unit, was opened in Ireland in two thousand and eight, and they picked up Nora Sheehan's murder very quickly. Um, and basically, the the defence under Michael Delaney SC um, was arguing that you know there was culpable delay in this because they started reinvestigating in two thousand and eight, and it wasn't obviously brought to trial until so recently. Um, so all that was heard by the judge, which didn't really have any bearing on the jury's um, decision that they had to make either. Um, and then there was other evidence which wasn't admitted. So say back back again in 1981, there were um, fibre matches taken from a brown jumper that was um, found in, in No Long's house, which were also found on um, Mrs Sheen's body. Um, that wasn't that wasn't um, that wasn't given to the jury because mm-hmm. um, the Garda, who had performed a search warrant, who had conducted the search warrant, um, basically they had also died, unfortunately. So that evidence wasn't admissible. Um, so things like that, um, 
you know, or if there'd been procedural errors in in the way evidence was collected, um, then that wasn't admitted, and then then the jury wasn't wasn't told about that either. So largely, usually, it largely evidence which which could be seen to prejudice, prejudice the trial, which wasn't established fact, I suppose. And it's fifteen years. I think it was two thousand and eight. Am I right when the serious crime review team? was tasked with re-examining the murder. And as part of the review, this microscopic slide, which was at the centre of the prosecution's evidence containing semen retrieved uh, from her body, was reassessed. Um, and and with an eye, they say, to, to modern scientific developments. This was at the, the centre of prosecution's argument, wasn't it? Yes, it was absolutely so. Um, so yeah, so so a swab uh, was taken at the time that Mrs. Sheen's body um, was found, and a forensic scientist, um, a scientist happened to be visiting at the time, uh, a doctor, Mr. Timothy Creedon, and he became involved in the case because he happened to be, I think, holidaying in in Shannon at the time, and preserved um, that swab um, in glass slides. At the time, we didn't have have the the technology, the DNA science, to be able to to use that really at the time. But um, later in two thousand and eight, when that um, cold case review team was established, they they did um, find that swab again, that's that's that sample again, and it was sent off to the UK for analysis because um, they had the the technology at the time to develop DNA from from samples with low amounts of DNA. Um, it, that that kind of process of DNA analysis was challenged by the defence um, in the case um, because that form of DNA analysis was um, overtaken by another form afterwards. So I think it became obsolete in, in 2012, I think. So it was only used for a few years. But um, but yeah, that there was significant um significant dna and forensic evidence really in general that linked the very very um clearly linked long um to to the mur- to, to the murder to mrs sheen's body essentially you, you when you were in court you you obviously got to see no long on quite a few occasions what sort of a demeanor had he about him um i understand that he had a bit of a swagger about him when he arrived in court um yeah, I mean, quite quite inscrutable a lot of the time, really. While he was in in the in the box, but yeah, when you'd see him, when I first saw him walking into court, I recognised his face from photos, but I didn't immediately know that it was him, you know. And um, yeah, he seemed quite confident, I suppose, and calm. Um, obviously, it's it's so hard to know what's going on in some inside someone's head. You know, people mm-hmm. can put on acts of bravado and everything um, when they're going through stressful situations as a kind of defense mechanism. But yeah, he did seem quite, um, yeah, I suppose, confident and calm. He sat with, uh, when I was there, I saw him sitting with his partner. I think they've been together for about 25 years. And um, they were very, they seemed very kind of close and they'd sit, you know, with with legs crossed towards each other. Um, so he, he, always, he always seemed to be supported in court when I was there um, and yeah 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 he seemed quite quite confident and calm I suppose um, what was going on inside his head obviously I don't know I wasn't there when the judgment was delivered but um, I read some of the excellent court copies supplied um, by Alison O'Riordan which I think made it into all the papers and um, it was it was noted that he was crying at that stage um, but um, yeah who knows what was going on inside his head at the time Okay, Liz, nice to talk to you this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Thanks. That's Liz Dunphy there from The Examiner talking about the murder trial of No Long. Uh, um, the 
the impact state, the impact, the emotional victim impact statement uh, was heartbreaking. Um, and um, Long had claimed at a pre-trial hearing when the jury was not present that when he was questioned by the Garda's murder squad in 1981, he was beaten. He also claimed he was brought into a dark room where his head was repeatedly immersed in glass containers holding what he was told were body parts. Now, this was thrown out uh, by retired Detective Inspector Jerry O'Carroll who was part of the murder squad team on the investigation in 1981 and he describes those claims as extraordinary nonsense and beyond, uh, beyond comprehension. Uh, so as I say, the uh, newspapers over the weekend have a huge amount of information in relation to that but also for those of you who couldn't understand that uh, facts that the jury did not get to hear. There was a huge amount of information that was withheld from the jury because, as Liz Dunphy said there, it could effectively prejudice the progress of the case. So, in other words, if you're getting a lot of uh, information in relation to previous convictions, well, then that could overshadow the evidence that is meant to be available to the jury and only that evidence. So, consequently, they didn't actually get to hear that amount of information. Uh, until after the conviction was made. Uh, okay, our number is 083 396 96 96 if you'd like to text us or WhatsApp us. And of course, you can email us again, opinion at 96fm.ie. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. This is the Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. Punch 96 now, I'm sure many of you will have found that conversation with Liz Dunphy from The Examiner very upsetting in relation to the no long murder case. Uh, he will probably die in prison after Friday's historic verdict, uh, but justice took an unimaginably long time for the family of Nora Sheehan. And uh, to Nora's family, uh, you're in our thoughts and prayers this morning. Um, speaking after the verdict, Superintendent Joe Moore from McCroom Garda Station said the case proved historical crime could be brought to a successful conclusion even after a prolonged period and he urged anyone with information in relation to a serious crime to come forward and assist with any other cold cases that remain unsolved. Technology today is magnificent in what it can uncover in relation to crimes, historic crimes that go back, as you heard there, 42 years. Astonishing. And uh, our best wishes to all of the Gardaí and uh, the investigators involved in that case. Now, uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, give us a shout. It's the Tuesday after a bank holiday weekend, the last one before school kicks back in. And I'm sure people, if, if you're on holidays, uh, if you're just back from holidays, maybe you're having a lazy day. Now, no boss wants grumpy staff, but would you actually put grumpy people need not apply in an ad if you were looking for his staff. Is it best to be direct? Brendan Cashman of the Ox in Kinsale thought it was. Good morning to you, Brendan. Good morning, Gareth. How are you? I love this. I love this. <laughs> Take me down. Your staff wanted now Ox Restaurant and Bar, chefs, bartenders, servers. Let's start with the servers. Um, sure. What are you looking for there? Well, we're looking for uh, predominantly um, uh, people with some experience uh, but but as I've said before you know people are happy to come to work and uh, you know do their job with a smile it's not hugely demanding we've tried to keep the restaurant very relaxed uh, we're into this is week four of, of, of it being open 
Um, and uh, you know, we've 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 been lucky so far. We've had a couple of very good people. Uh, unfortunately, they're currently on holidays, but it doesn't allow us to open fully uh, what we intended to. Right. So, really, grumpy people need not apply is the message here, with the exception, I have to say, of chefs. Uh, well, you know, chefs, I'm, I'm one myself. So, <laughs> some days are better than others. Right, okay. You're grumpy, are you? <laughs> well, not really, no. Well, you know what they say about the restaurant industry. It's a perfect business except for staff and customers. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things you highlight in the ad is that pressing a microwave button at home is not the same as being a chef in a pro kitchen. Uh, no, you, you you need to have um, well, you need to have some uh, understanding of HACCP um, and general food safety and hygiene. But also, you need you know, you know you need to be able to work in a professional um, kitchen in a professional way. Um, that's a skill, unfortunately. That's that's hugely lacking out there, not not just in in Kinsale, but un- unfortunately countrywide. Mm. Take me through a chef's day from the moment you arrive at work. Um, well, you you you'd be responsible, obviously, for uh, purchasing, and mm. then that you know it's a it's a three sixty thing. So those orders come in; they have to be. Um, there's a lot of paperwork involved in that. They have to be refrigerated, and then you you start your process of mise en place or preparation for for that day's service. Um, and also, there's you know there's cleaning and maintenance to be done. So it's a it's it's a busy day for a chef. Chefs are are always busy. Yeah, and are they difficult to get to to to, to find to employ? Uh, they absolutely. Yeah. It's um, and this has been going on a very long time. It's it's not anything recent. Um, people aren't interested in look it's not an easy job it's it's a it's a lot of hours uh no matter how much you get paid if you divide it up by the hours you put into it it's never huge uh so there has to be an element of of passion about what you do um it look it's a tough job people aren't interested bartenders are they are they difficult to get hold of we haven't had well. We have one uh, fantastic girl who who covers uh, two nights a week. It's uh, it's somebody to to be able to make cocktails to a pretty decent standard, and and you know run a bar service. Which which uh, I'm not a bar person, but it it, it requires a uh, a lot of coordination, and um, there is a skill set to it. Mm-hmm. Previously, you advertised for people in the more senior age ranges. How did that work out? <laughs> We had two or three applicants. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. We had two or three applicants. Uh, two, of, one of which I met, um, and I'm meeting later on this morning again. Uh, is his um, his very highly qualified, his retired man, who's looking to do you know one or two days, um, sort of administration work, which which is great. Uh, two of the other applicants, unfortunately, had to cancel one due to ill health and one due to hospital appointments. So we're not sure. Uh, that that worked out all that well, right? Okay. And do you find yourself jumping into the kitchen the odd time? Oh, I'm 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 in the kitchen full time. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, what is it? What is it like to work directly with the boss if uh, if you've got a chef working with you? Are you easy um, enough to work with? I'm pretty easy to work with. I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure people would say that. I haven't been in the kitchen with me, but the I am. I'm, look, and this is this is casual dining. It's not. Uh, I spent my uh, career in high end uh, cuisine. This is the other end of the market, and 
much more laid back and relaxed. Great. Well, look, I wish you well with the uh, <laughs> job applications. Much. I hope you get lots of them. <laughs> Thanks, Brendan. All right. Listen, not all. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Brendan Cashman there from the Oxen Can Sale. Uh, you can drop your details in or you can email info at oxkinsale. That's oxkinsale.com. Now, um, just coming back to the celebrations the homecoming queens, Camogie All-Ireland champions returning to Cork, the Irish Times. Wonderful photograph uh, by James Crombie on the front page. Cork midfielder Ashling Thompson with the O'Duffy Cup hoisted high and her All-Ireland senior Camogie champions teammate celebrating on the open-top bus during their homecoming. And a lovely photograph uh, inside lots of the papers today of several of Cork's All-Ireland winning senior Camogie stars visiting Temple Street Children's Hospital yesterday ahead of their homecoming after hammering Waterford in the Croker final. Five goals, 13 points to eight points on Sunday. Uh, their manager, Matthew Toomey, and players Amy O'Connor and Izzy O'Regan took the O'Duffy Cup along with them to show the young patients. And uh, da- Daniel McCarthy... Uh, who's from Hattrick Hero, Amy O'Connor's Neck of the Woods in Northside Cork, had the chance to chat with the players and have their photos taken with the trophy. Uh, lovely. And then, of course, the um, team boarded the open-top bus down Patrick Street onto Grand Parade and South Mile before stopping outside the Imperial for a reception. Then it was off to St. Vincent's in Knocknahini to continue the celebrations. And uh, great big beaming smiles aboard the open-top bus there on uh, on Monday, on Sunday, on Monday. Mm. Now, good news. Uh, if you heard us la- talking last week about the possibility uh, of two gigs in Parky Cueve in 2024 next year for Bruce Springsteen, two huge gigs down the park for the bus uh, for the bus. Uh, Will Leeside will be rocking that weekend. There's no, sh- no no doubt about that. It looks like the rumours were true. Bruce is eyeing a big return t- to Ireland next summer and could be down to play two nights in Parky Cueve in May. So the dates we were mentioning will now be May 16th and 18th, while Nolan Park will also see at least two and possibly three gigs around the same time. So we'll let you know when tickets go on sale for that. Now, um, Tuesday morning, I hope you're well, 083 396 Very light traffic around this morning. I was strolling across town having got the early bus in. But we're only less than a few weeks away from the craziness of the school run on the roads again. Jerry has an idea, a good idea of how we could do this. Jerry, good morning to you. No, not he's not there yet. That's fine. We'll get Jerry on the phone now very shortly for you. Um, other news this morning. Uh, talk of this new Eris variant of the COVID. Uh, the the the, the the COVID virus. Apparently, news this morning coming from the UK, they're opening a vaccine research centre to help scientists prepare, prepare for disease X. Now, disease X is what virologists and bacteriologists are calling the next pandemic. And they don't know what it will be. They have an idea that it could be one of maybe five different uh, viruses are bacterial infections that they're keeping a close eye on. But live viruses will be kept in containment facilities at a Wiltshire site in the UK amid search for the next potential pandemic pathogen. They'll be kept on site in specialist containment facilities where scientists can assess pathogens that do not yet have a vaccine 
or ones where immunisation could be improved, for example, the flu or one that they're now seeing more of, and that's MPOX. And Professor Dame Jenny Harries says today, what we're trying to do now is capture that really excellent work from COVID and make sure we're using that as we go forward for any new pandemic threats. But uh, that's a site, as I say, in Wiltshire, where a lot of work will be covered in relation to possible outbreaks of viruses that we don't know very much about. These scientists are well ahead of us in that and that they're keeping an eye on it. Just like astronomers are trying to find new planets and stars, uh, these guys are trying to find the new viruses before we uh, contract them and to create new vaccinations for them. So we wish them well in that. Singer Imelda May asking fans to line the streets as thousands pay their final respects at Bray, in Bray in County Wicklow uh, very shortly this morning at Sinead O'Connor's funeral. The family of the late singer have announced a funeral cortege will make its way through the seaside Wicklow town at 10.30 and will stop at Sinead's former home, Montebello, where she lived for 15 years. She sold the six-bedroom home in 2021, but her family have said that uh, there will be one final stop at the house before a private burial takes place. And uh, she moved, of course, to London and uh, to uh, a lovely area of Brixton in East London, where she was renting an apartment, and that was where she was found by the London Met Police last week. Um... And a piece in the Daily Star today, Ireland has been in a state of grief since Sinead died of a fortnight ago. And the nation will publicly mourn her today as thousands are expected to turn out to pay a final tribute to a true Irish icon. And uh, we'll come back to that. I think we may be going live to Bray. Uh, and a little later during the next hour on the show. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96FM. Just talking about how light the traffic is there. I got the quarter to seven bus in from Grange this morning uh, on the south side, and I think I was the only one on the bus for about five minutes. Um, and it would have dropped me outside the Imperial Hotel, I think about five minutes later. It was like a 10 minute in a journey the bus just flew in so definitely people are either uh, they've either got the curtains closed and they're fast asleep at that time of the morning or they're away, hopefully away somewhere nice Garrett's down now on a day like today if it doesn't rain, beautiful, beautiful walk along the beach there. So very light traffic around but we're barely weeks away now from the madness of the school run on the roads again. Jerry has an idea Jerry, good to talk to you, how are you? Morning, Gareth. How are you? Great to see you made a good recovery from your accident. So far, so good, Jerry. Yeah, I'm still a little bit yeah. shaky on the legs, but uh, I think uh, Patrick's Hill now for the last couple of weeks has kind of put a bit of strength back into them. Um, good, good. But it was lovely to talk to you there when we met there the other day. That's you, right. You have a good idea of how we could end the the traffic madness. What what's that? Well, I I, I was thinking about this, Gareth, and as you know, we have an awful lot of uh, traffic. In especially in the mornings going into the city centre. So but I, I, I came up with a solution which I think should work if there was uh, effort, a bit of effort put into it. Uh, we have in Cork all our shopping centres around the city. And what I think that if people were to drive to the shopping centres early in the morning, and if there were special school buses only to bus the kids into, into the city centre or maybe drop them at schools, 
and this would relieve the traffic uh, immensely. I mean, we say if you take your own area of Douglas, well, you know, we say for argument's sake, if the kids were dropped off in uh, Douglas Court Shopping Centre, a school bus they're waiting, and you have one bus or maybe two buses going into town instead of maybe 40 or 50 cars. And you multiply that maybe by eight or ten shopping centres dotted around the city, we say from Blackpool, Blackmire, uh, Bishopstone, etc., right? Mm-hmm. And that would take a fortune of traffic off the roads in the morning and people that need to get to work will be able to get there, hopefully, just like when the schools are off. Just the fact it would take an awful lot of pollution out of the city and maybe those ugly air purifiers or whatever they call them in the city centre could be removed. Yeah, it's a great idea, Jerry. Um, because I know any mornings <coughs> now during the school during the school year, um, the school term, c- coming in along the road there, you've got Christ King, Christ Ree, you've the Nano Nagel building, and and you've got hundreds and hundreds of young students crossing the road, getting out of cars, getting out of SUVs, and there's just no room for the traffic. And then if you put in the scheduled, the, the, the 206 bus there, the 220 bus, it, it's mayhem in the morning, isn't it? Oh, it's, to- it's totally crazy, you know? And then people, as you said, with SUVs, they're double parked, they're parking everywhere, they're parking on footpaths and everything, you know? And, like... This has gone on for years and nobody has ever come up with a solution to it. You mentioned uh, the Douglas Court car park. That is ideal, really, isn't it, where parents could drop off their young uh, students? They could, they, they could, of course, yeah, because, uh, you know, we maybe come from various parts of Douglas and Rochester, you know, and that or, uh, the supermarket car parks early in the morning are empty. Yeah. So I think that it's a fantastic idea. Uh, people that need to go into the Cox City Centre to do whatever business they need to do, well, the roads will be free up for them as well, and people will be going to work. They're not going to be stressed out and agitated, given out about the traffic. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that there are a couple of private bus operators that work sure. directly with schools. Um and I can't think of the name of one. It's a very popular one. I think it serves one of the big Rochestown colleges. But what they do is they they follow the normal bus route, but they pick up their students at the bus stops. Not, right. Usually not during the time that the bus will be there because, the too, once again, too much traffic going on. Um, but that would be another idea, wouldn't it, where a private bus operator will pick up students from, say, four or five schools in the area, drop them off and then collect them again in the afternoon. And this could possibly, it it could be subsidised by the parents because it means that they're saving, uh, they're saved the trouble of having to drive their SUVs to the school. Uh, yes. So it, it, it works both ways, doesn't it? Well, certainly without a shadow of a doubt. And I mean, they're going to save on fuel and... They don't have to come all the way into the city and come all the way back out again, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I think the, if, if the effort was put in, it would certainly work. I mean, it works in other countries. Why can't it work here? I'm just all, all, all it needs is the will to get, to do it. Yeah. Just, just the fact, Alice, I think 
you know, we don't know, or City Hall maybe don't know how much these big uh, ugly air purifiers are going to cost us, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe City Hall could even go to soft, give the parents an incentive to uh, use the, this idea that I have. And, you know, I think also that you see a lot of kids get down buses in the morning and they're paying the driver, which is slowing down the buses yeah. as well. And they should have a, a special, like a leap card, that they, a weekly or a monthly uh, pass. And, you know, that would speed up the kids getting on the bus as well. Yeah, you're right, because I noticed that there there are so many stops where that happens, but particularly late in the afternoon, if the bus is coming back out through Douglas and it stops at the Tesco shopping centre there, the bus stop there, yes. you could have anything up to 20, 30, 40 students getting on the bus and paying the bus driver. So he's parked there for five to ten minutes. Oh, yeah, with all the shadow of a doubt. And I mean, like, you know, everybody today is in a hurry, unfortunately, and... Um, you know, I personally think that it would be a great idea, and even to run a bus, a bus we say from uh, Frank, from we say Frankfield down by Corner Woods, mm-hmm. right up through Bridge down into Douglas, and along the uh, you know you could have one you could have a bus running uh, on the South Douglas Road and another bus running on the on the, the main Douglas Road. I mean, you take Thomas Cross there in the morning, several Green Road, it's totally chaotic. The buses can't pass. That's right. And also, with all the traffic. Looking at Douglas Village itself, effectively it is still a village, but yet it's catering for uh, traffic coming in from Carrigaline. Carrigaline population, about 32,000. Uh, a lot of those workers are using the run-in through Douglas to get into the city centre. Where do you think this will take us? I mean, when you look ahead in 10 years' time, um, Douglas won't be able to handle that kind of traffic, nor, nor will the likes of junctions like Turner's Cross. They can, Douglas can't handle the traffic as it is. Yeah. The place is totally choked. And I mean, it is or was, you know, a village. I mean, if you look at the old photographs of Douglas, you know, it was basically woodlands. And it was for dogs and cats, like a lot of coxes he was. But, like, it's very, it's a very difficult area to sort out the traffic because you saw so many little streets, etc. Uh, I mean, the volume of traffic in Dublin, I don't know what the population of Douglas, but it must be 15 or 20,000. 22,000, yeah, according to the yeah. latest, yeah. 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 So, like, I mean, like, that's the size, that's the size of, a, of, of a big town. Mm. It is, yeah. You know, and I think it is a major, major problem. And you know, if if Bossier don't want to do it, give the give give the work to private contractors, and surely they be delighted of the extra income stream. Mm. Jerry, great to talk to you. Um, very productive ideas there, actually. I'm sure you, you. you might plant a seed in somebody's head now this morning. Well, ho- 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 hopefully the, the powers that be are listening mm-hmm. and they, they take it up. Even if they only ran, like, pick one area, we say for argument, say Douglas or Blackpool or wherever, Blackwell, right? Try it on an experimental basis yeah. and then they can expand it. That's one other thing, if I may say it, please, sure, right? Yes. Um, people parking in uh, disability spots. Mm. Um, 
I did this there recently where somebody was parked with no bag. Jer- Jerry, can I ask you, that's, it's, this is an interesting topic, and I'm going to ask if you can stay with me. Well, PJ is back tomorrow, so this is our last day with you, and I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I know he arrived home sometime over the weekend, but uh, I was going to ring him, but then you think, hey, hang on, he's still on holidays, so give him a little bit of a break there. So, um, by all accounts, he had a lovely time, the whole family did, during the holiday. Now, it's Gareth O'Callaghan with you through until 12 midday, 083 396 and email opinion at 96fm.ie Jerry very kindly stayed on the line there I hope you got a cup of tea in, in the, 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 the news bulletin Jerry did you? I, I got it I was like oh, I was up early <laughs> I had the tea I had the breakfast early <laughs> oh, good man what would you have would you, you sound like a porridge man are you? Yeah, I like I like porridge, and uh, I also drink uh, a glass. Of, I squeeze uh, grapefruit. Oh, very good, very good. Interesting. Grapefruit is something I, I can't take. Grapefruit for some reason I'm allergic to it, uh, which is very unusual. Although people tell me that a grapefruit allergy is not all that rare. But let's get back to what we were talking about, Jerry. You mentioned um, disability parking spaces, and you wanted yes, to make correct. a point about that. I, yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there and they're very ignorant to uh, disabled parking and they, they take up spaces, right? Mm-hmm. So people with a disability, uh, to get a blue badge, they have to go to the doctor, they have to be certified, uh, I'm sorry, for uh, the badge, plus the fact they also have to pay for it. Right. And how, how much do you have to pay for it? Well, the fee is thirty-five euro for two years. Right, and if you're on a medical card, is that free? No, oh, I think right. you, it's, well, as far as I know, it's not. Right. Well, I you suppose still have yeah, to pay. it it would come under the driving license uh, yeah. area, wouldn't it? Yeah, possibly would. Yeah, uh, I did it there last week in the shopping centre where. Uh, uh, Morpheus part in the disability spot and uh, mm-hmm. I, I um, met the driver and his partner and I told him that he shouldn't have been parked or that was the parking space for disab- uh, people with a blue badge and he told me to F off that he'll park wherever he like when he like and he'll park there again wow Yes. Yeah, I got, I got serious. He, I, he got very abusive, and his partner turned around. She says, "Oh, I thought that was uh, a baby and parent spot." And I said, "Do you not realise the disability emblem that's on the ground?" Yeah, and uh, I pointed out that he shouldn't park there. He told me to f off, as they said. He parked there again, and he parked whenever he wants, and that's it. Um, the st- security staff, in, oh, he made me very angry because he was so um, cocky about the whole thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, the staff, I already had said it to the security staff in the shopping centre, they came out and they, took, they just warned him, don't park here again. Wow. You know, but well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very common thing. I, I notice it there though, in various uh, places, you know, whether it's Super Values or Aldi's or even the same town, that people think they've got to give a right to park where they like, on footpaths, double yellow lines, you name it, you know. 
Yeah, the thing I think is happening here, Jerry, is that people, that vicious streak that a lot of people carry with them when they're out driving on the open road, they're carrying it into the car parking facilities now. They're getting vicious and nasty about parking. I saw it the other day myself where a guy blocked an, an elderly couple from parking in the, the there was there was no disability parking available. I could see the blue badge on his car, mm-hmm. and he went to reverse into one of these mother or, or guardian and baby bays, but he was blocked from it by a guy who said, "You can't park there. I have kids in my car. I'm entitled to park there instead of you." And uh, the the elderly man he got out of the car and he had, he had a uh, a crutch. And I kind of thought to myself, when the guy got out of the jeep that he was in and then went into the shopping centre, the three kids who were in the car, he left them behind. The whole idea of the baby and guardian parking space is that you can put the baby... Ah, boy, yeah, yeah and you, take the children, they'll be sure yeah. the baby in, yeah. Yeah, it's a slightly wider space, so you have the opportunity to put the baby into the buggy safely and nobody is going to, you know, impact your space on either side of the car. But I, I really do think that people, not everybody, but I just think there's a nasty, nasty streak in some individuals who just don't care about anybody else. Well, without a shadow of a doubt, and you see, these spaces are there for a reason. Like people, especially wheelchairs, uh, they need uh, the extra wide space so that they can open the car fully. Mm-hmm. And even just a lot of people who don't, who have disabilities that don't use a wheelchair, but they still need the wide space to get out of the cars. Yeah. You know, and I. I, I I just to tell you briefly, uh, I remember one day I was in the supermarket car park and uh, there was two foreign guys parked in the, the mother and baby spot and there was no children whatsoever in the car. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they got out, when they, they were did uh, some shopping and came back out, I was still in my car and I said, Lance, where's your baby? Did you leave me in the supermarket? You know? <laughs> <laughs> On the ball there, Jerry. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's another again, another superman. Where uh, this young guy uh, got out of a van with his woman, and uh, I said, uh, Your partner's able spot. Oh, yeah, my mo- I got in to collect my mother. And I said, all right. And I said, where's your badge? Oh, my mother has this inside the supermarket. <laughs> I said, it's not supposed to be on your mother. It's supposed to be on your, your car or your van. <laughs> <laughs> she had it in her wallet. Yeah. You know, one of the excuses these people yeah. come up with is unreal. Ah, I'm only going in for five minutes. Yeah, oh, stop. Oh, they'll, they'll chance it. to get away with it, they'll chance anything. Jerry, it's well, great chatting to you. You too, and uh, I hope that you keep making a good recovery and it's ah, great to you. hear you on the radio again, Gavish. Thanks so much, Jerry. Look okay, after you're yourself. more than welcome. You God too. Bless. God bless. Thanks, yes, thanks so much. Thanks. Very quiet around the city. I'm looking out over the uh, the city of Cork this morning and I, I can count five cars on Patrick Street, one bus, and about tw- I, I think about 12 pedestrians. So I gather that everybody has other things to be doing this morning. But I hope you can stay with us through till 12, 83 96, 96, 96. Now, giving up the booze 
is a very big step for a lot of people. I think it's fair to say we would rather cut down, but cutting down and being mindful can change your outlook on socialising and the whole social scene. That's what Jerry Raftery found. Jerry, good morning to you. Good morning, Gareth. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, well, I think they're all okay. I think a lot of them are That's probably right. not listening this morning because they're probably in okay, the resting. Yeah, are the Canaries or Spain or Portugal or whatever? Lucky right, them. Right. Lucky them. Tell me your story now. First of all, you're a mindfulness teacher, aren't you? That's right. I've been teaching mindfulness for about uh, ten years. Uh, sometimes in in the Cork area, Mitchellstown, Charleville, uh, Newtown, Shandon, places like that. Um, and I've been working. I suppose. During COVID, I, I reached the age of 70 around COVID, so I suppose a certain amount of retirement uh, kicked in at that stage. Mm-hmm. But I worked then voluntarily with the group in Tipperary um, last year and early this year uh, doing mindfulness. Um, they were a cancer support group. Uh, a lot of the people in the group were in treatment for cancer. A uh, very tough kind of situation, but very powerful, very honest and I wasn't going to mention alcohol and mindfulness in the group, but one of the men in the group said, uh, I drink two glasses of wine a week. That's what's recommended for me, he said, and I enjoy my two glasses of wine in the week. And uh, That got me thinking about mindfulness and drinking and uh, my own drinking. Now, I don't think I'm in the hazardous, I didn't think I was in the hazardous, hazardous reason of drinking but when I began to look at my own drinking and then try to reduce it my drinking uh, to what is the supposed to be the healthy level because uh, we have standards around low risk drinking and like drink in itself there's nothing wrong with it it's very good for you and it's very good for individuals for society for sociability and so forth. But it's when we start drinking too much that it can become a problem. But I was looking at my own drinking. I didn't think I had a problem, and I probably hadn't a problem, but I was drinking more than the recommended amount. I was above the number of points that one should drink, units. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, I'd cut back now, and I'd try and work out the recommended. Instead of two bottles of wine, maybe one bottle of wine. And as I was doing that, I found, oh, my God, after the second glass, so why can't I have another drink. Yeah. And eventually I decided just to, to give up. It was easier in one way to give up altogether than to start uh, reducing it. That's, that was my story. It's not necessarily everybody's story, but it can be a challenge to, to reduce uh, your consumption of alcohol. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole lifestyle that I used to look forward to my drink. Uh, I wouldn't drink every night. I would drink maybe four nights a week. I would drink on a Thursday, Friday over the weekend. A few alcohol-free nights that was supposed to be recommended, but so I look forward to the drink. Uh, so and then going away on holidays, uh, my wife doesn't drink, so I wasn't. And then during COVID, one couldn't go out, but going away on holidays, going away for a break, I'd always enjoy going into a pub for a pint, and I had to begin to change that. So the habits you get into, it's difficult to to change the habit of drinking as well as. The, the fondness for the, the taste of it, if you know what I mean. It's, it's yeah, it's got that physiological... Um, Absolutely, yes, yeah. Because it's I, I almost, drink, it's I, not a dependence, but it's, it's almost like the body is relying on it. It becomes so used to it, doesn't it? It does, yes. You just want another one. Like, I, I, I drink the odd um, glass of non-alcoholic beer, and I just have one of them. Yeah. But if I had uh, a pint of Guinness, I'd want another one or a glass of wine, or what. There's something, there is something, as you say, physiological uh, in the alcohol that draws, that, 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 that draws you in. Um, so, so when so, you decided to cut down, Jerry, 
Um, and you, you, and it is a, a very good point you make that giving it up is probably easier than cutting cutting down on it. And I think most people probably find that who try to cut back on it because it's it's very difficult to sustain the lower it, amount that you cut back to, isn't it? Oh, it is, it is. I think we need, like, there's no point in going down the, the, the abstentionist, moralistic kind of approach. That's not going to work. And in fact, if you look at the statistics, uh, about 75% of Irish people drink alcohol, but about 50% of those drink it in what's called a hazardous way. They're, they're drinking more than they should be drinking. And maybe about 10% of that group are drinking. They can't stop drinking and they really need, need help. But it's the people in the hazardous area who need to begin to do something about it, I think, that, that 50% of people who are drinking more than they should. And the first step that I took and the first step that I think anybody should take is um, how much am I drinking, really? And be honest about it. Because I, I knew I, I wasn't really being honest myself about the amount I was drinking. Um, and you, you can't ma- manage what you can't measure or you don't measure. Mm. So try to, how, how often are you drinking? How much are you drinking? How much are you spending on alcohol? And maybe the harm reduction approach then would be to begin to, to modify that, reduce that, uh, maybe one night a week less drink, uh, drinking, one less drink on a night, um, or have a budget for your drinking. Uh, that would be another thing. Because most of us don't really know how much we're spending and we end up spending far more than we actually uh, want to believe on, on, on alcohol. And nowadays, when you look at the cost of living crisis, um, you have all these people recommending how we should manage our finances. I never see anybody saying, maybe have one or two drinks less, one less bottle of wine in the week, uh, one less pint on the night out. And in th- those, we don't... Uh, see that connection between uh, between money and uh, and our drinking. So I think we, to to go take the harm harm reduction approach is how much am I drinking? How much is good for me? And how can I begin to modify? And then we get caught up in um, to try to take control of your own drinking as well, because very often we're afraid to say no. I often find myself in situations where you end up drinking as much as the heaviest drinker in the group the last man standing, you know, and uh, that's kind of crazy. So we need to take responsibility. How much am I going to drink tonight? When is my stop-off point? But it takes a lot of courage because I know people will mock you and say, for God's sake, you know, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. And I know when I told people that I was giving up drink, I said, for God's sake, you, you have no problem with drinking. But then I don't have a problem with drinking, but I found the only way I could manage. And then we get to see the benefits of it not just financial, but just health-wise as well, that there are benefits in, in not drinking. Also, when I was doing some research, uh, when I was trying to work on this, this is about six months ago I, I gave it up, I looked at H, an HRB report on uh, on alcohol in Ireland. There, the one came out recently, now there's lots of reports in the examiner about the findings of, of the recent report. But in this report, one of the things they highlighted was older people now, I don't know what age you are, Gareth, but I'm over 65. And over yeah. 65s, older people, it is quite a problem for older people, uh, and they don't realise it. And th- there's all sorts of things like the body, as you get older, can't handle as much drink as you could handle when you were in your 40s or 50s or whatever. There's also your balance. There's a piece in the examiner the other day about balance 
And as we get older, it's more difficult to, to keep your balance. Mm. And if you're taking alcohol, you're more likely to slip or fall. And then, God knows what kind of damage you could end up impairing yourself in some way or other. Um, and then also people, older people are, can be on medication. Um, and they can, if they're not drinking, if they're drinking alcohol, they might forget to take the medication. They might mix the medication with the, with the alcohol, which mightn't be good either. And then the strokes and dementias. So there's all sorts of more risks involved with older. So I think I would be appealing to older people who are drinking hazardously to begin to look at their drinking and see in what way they can um, change it, cut it back. Also, you're on a fixed income. I know, I know that as an older person. Yeah. If you're living on a pension, you're living on a fixed income. And you can't afford as much. So there's all sorts of factors there. So I think that thing about the, the, the older person, uh, I don't want to go down, as I said, the whole abstentionist model. The harm reduction approach is one that's, I was just looking at a definition of harm reduction. It's about compassionate pragmatism rather than any kind of moralistic idealism. So I wouldn't want to be going down the moralistic route or give mm. it up altogether. But just to be pragmatic, practical in your own situation. Uh, and then the culture is so difficult in the culture. One of the things I found difficult uh, during the summer, uh, watching the, 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 the championships of the football and hurling. Now, I'm from Galway originally, so I had great hopes that they were dashed no more than the Cork hopes, but Cork had a great win on Sunday. Though. But watching the the, the, the the football and hurling, the championship, these ads would come on at the break, and you'd be all excited, and these fantastic ads would come on for alcohol. And I found those very difficult. And the, there's, there's legislation now about alcohol advertising in the media, and I think that's something that, uh, that needs to be taken into consideration. So I had to kind of be mindful and, 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 and cop on to myself when I saw these beautiful uh, these, these beautiful ads. So there's, it's not, once you're in the habit of drinking alcohol, enjoy alcohol, and enjoying alcohol, it can be very difficult to, to, to move away from it. So as I said, the mindfulness bit, there's one quote um, in mindfulness that I, I, I use very often in courses, and um, people seem to uh, get a lot out of it. And it's it's a line from, uh, I think you, you, you work in, in, in this area, uh, from Viktor Frankl, you probably heard of the oh, Man's yes. Search for Meaning and, and all of that. What yeah. a brilliant book. That's right, yeah. Mm. yeah very, very powerful. Yeah, and his own story is super. But he has a line, between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And that's what mindfulness is. It's that kind of awareness in that moment. Somebody asks you, they have a drink. And more often we don't, it's a stimulus then, or the you see the ad on television, but between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And that's what mindfulness is, taking that space, will I, won't I? And as he says, in that response lies our growth and our freedom. So we're free to choose whether to take a drink or not to take a drink. Um, so I think mindfulness can be helpful there. Yeah, you've just reminded me to go back and read that Viktor Frankl book again. It's a wonderful book. I think it's a book oh, for the time, super, yes, really. Yeah. I mean, the time we're going through at the moment, I think it's... Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Jerry, yeah, it's, yeah. Great, it's great to talk to you and thank you so much for sharing your story with us this morning. Thank you, Gareth. Thanks for giving me the time and the opportunity. Take bye, care. bye. Thank you. That's Jerry Raftery there. Um, a mindfulness teacher, Personal Minds Milestones. Well, a lovely name for a company. Personal Milestones 
and uh, former chair Cork Local Alcohol and Drugs Task Force. Uh, so thank you, Jerry. Lovely to talk to you. Let the Emmons Garris O'Callaghan here on the opinion line. Just uh, give us a shout if you would like to have a chat or join in any of the conversation. 0833 96 96 96. Now, the squalor of housing in Noonan's Road led residents there to protest and campaign over the last few weeks. If you've seen photographs, uh, they were all over social media. But it turns out that the City Council knew quite a bit about conditions there before this. Thomas Gould, TD with Sinn Féin, Cork North Central, joins me now to talk about a report from December 2022. Good, good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Gareth. Um, are you, are, were you surprised by this report? Yes, uh, well, I wasn't surprised with the contents of the report because when you listen to tenants and if you visit the, the flats and see what the condition that some of the flats are in, um, everything in this report is kind of reflects what the tenants were telling us for years. So... The report is just official proof of what the tenants were saying all along and just goes to prove that they were right. Now, I've been having a look at some of the photographs, uh, Tommy, and the, the it, it's, it's just squalor, isn't it? I mean, the, having to live in these kind of conditions, is, is it, it, it's just not acceptable by any means. No, and like this is a scandal, actually, uh, yeah. Gareth, because there was a report done which outlines how bad these uh, Noonan's Road are. And the report recommends the demolishing of Noonan's Road and the rebuilding of proper housing. And they estimated it's going to cost 20 million. No, the the, it would cost 12 million to retrofit them. But the ret- they are so bad that the report, the this report is saying the best option would be to knock them because there are there are major structural issues in Luna's Road that this report has um, identified. There are serious uh, issues with the roof, with the walls, and with the balconies. And like for people to be living in Luna's Road, telling the council for for years and years that. Uh, these properties needed serious work, if not demolishing. And then this report shows everything that they were saying is right. And the thing about it, when these flats were built 60 years ago, they were only given a 50-year life expectancy. So the council should have known that this was coming down the track. And what this report reveals is the council did know last December. And for eight months, the council sat on a report and never told the tenants, never told the local councillors. Like, our local councillor, Fiona Kearns, has been constantly looking for information and asking questions about what's happening with Nuna's Road. And myself and Don Galera have been up in the Doyle, and we've raised a question with a number of different ministers. And, like, for this report to come out now, and now the councillor is saying they want another report, and that will be out in September. I believe um, it's it's not good enough. There needs to be movement now. And I just wanted to thank uh, Garrett say, um, I just a special mention to the whistleblower who, who through concerns about the, the, the safety aspect of Noonan's Road, uh, released this document. Because if it wasn't for the whistleblower, we would know anything 
about this today. Yeah. The report, Thomas says, um, b- basically, I know it was seen by the Echo, it, it has found structural cracks in each of the apartment blocks. The connections anchoring the roofs to the masonry walls, they say, are insufficient, which is uh, a mild description from what I've seen in the photographs. The connections between internal and external walls are insufficient and a lack of mortar in the masonry of half of the buildings. Looking at the photographs, that's a bit of an understatement. Like some some of these walls are collapsing. Yes. And like this, this is a really serious report. This is a damning report about the conditions of Nolan's Road and what the, what the tenants have been living in. And the one thing I want to say, Gareth, the people in Nunes Road love where they live. Mm. They, lo- they have great neighbours, they have great friends, but they shouldn't have to live in these conditions. And that's why, now I think Cox City Council needs to act. Don't wait in any more reports that'll take six or 12 months. They have a report, they need to go to the government now, and that's so central. The 20 million euros, they need to... Uh, move people out, not Noodles Road, and build proper housing because, like, you're looking at the photographs, uh, all the coverage you've given it over the last couple of weeks, and the echo, and, and other people have given it. Uh, people are saying to me, I said, this is a disgrace, it's a scandal what these people have had to put up with. And that's why we're calling you now uh, for immediate action because Cox City Council had this report. Cox City Council went up and met with the residents up there and they never mentioned that this report was there and this report uh, recommended the demolishing of the houses and the building of new flats. And do you feel that it would have been more open if the council had mentioned the report, you know, when the story started getting attention a few weeks ago? Yes. Well, We've been putting in questions. Few of the counts, as I said, has been putting in questions for months. This report should have been uh, made available to the tenants and to the local councillors. And it should be sent to the Department of Housing in Dublin looking for immediate funding. Like, the, the funding would be... Like, I've raised this with the ministers, and the ministers are saying there's no application for funding in Fernandes Road. And I find that unbelievable that here we have a report that says... There's major structural issues. It also recommends the demolishing. And on the other side, the council have yet to apply. But the one thing I would say, Gareth, and for years, the government have cut budgets uh, to central council. They cut the block grants. Mm. And because of that, Cork City Council never had the money to do the work that was so badly needed in Noonan's Road. And, like... The government have a lot of answers. uh, They're responsible for a lot of this because they never gave the money. There was no preventative maintenance done. There was no continuous maintenance done. And people were just left up there with dampness, with mould, with leaks. And this this is a shocking situation that the council and the government have left the people in Nunes Road in. And I hope now the revelations that this report came out and because of this uh, whistleblower, and I think this should be complimented and, uh, and I suppose being so caring about the residents and doing this, I think there needs to be ordered action now. And, and it's fair to say that many of the, many of the, the, the occupants, many of the residents would also have 
uh, illnesses and health conditions that are exacerbated by these awful conditions that they live in. Wouldn't isn't that the case? It, and you see, Gareth, for a lot of people who live in Nunezoa, the older people, That's right. they've lived there. They've lived there for uh, 30, 40 years. Some of them, you know, I, mm. I, I had I spoke to a couple last week who are living up there forty six years. Forty six years, they've put huge amount of money into their flat because they've tried to renovate it themselves. And how unfair was that? That people have put their life savings trying to make these flats um, livable and they've got loans from credit unions and banks when this is the work the council should have been done. Like, the, these flats were past their, their sell-by date. That over 10 years past their sell-by date. And no one seemed to care. No one seemed to have any respect mm-hmm. for the for the residents up there and like I, I don't know I, and listen I know there are really good and genuine people in Cox City Council but for this report to sit on the desk for eight months and for Cox City Council not to apply to the government for funding and the government not to be given a black grant to the council to carry out preventative maintenance and urgent maintenance. And I suppose just to give you a, a, an idea, Gareth, we did a ho- housing maintenance survey over the last couple of weeks in Sinn Féin, and the results were published last week. And the, the results were absolutely scandalous, yeah. and they're exactly like what this report is telling us in Luna's Road. Oh, very much so. And, and as you say, the report notes that the flats were built in the 1960s. Many of the people living in them, um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are still residents there that moved into them when they were first built. And, Gareth, when you think of it this, no, they were built in the 60s. People are spending a fortune trying to heat them because of the structural issues and because of the damp and the coldness and the mould. And, like, we know the cost of living now at the moment, the price of electricity, the price of gas, uh, how expensive it is to heat the property. Every time they would turn off the heating, their properties would become freezing cold. Yeah. Because the only way to heat them was to leave the heating on constantly. And there was another survey carried out into the energy efficiency of these properties that we haven't seen. And that's the other thing I would say to the council. I believe this report should be published. I believe any other reports into Noonan's Road or any other fact complexes that are there need to be public. These people are entitled to this information, you know, for like for reports to be sat on shelves and people living in houses and not know isn't good enough. So I would call in the Cox City Council to publish this and all reports and also then not wait on any other foreign reports to take action now and to to meet with the, with the residents of Noonan Road and put a plan in place of what's going to happen. And that, like, the, the chief executive has said that she will come back to them in September with a report. I, I, I think the chief executive now needs to come back with a plan of what they're going to do right now to, to help these people in Noonan Road. Well said. Uh, before you go, Thomas, I know you you want to congratulate the girls on the big camogie win over the weekend. Yes, well, listen, I was up in Croke Park for uh, an absolutely unbelievable day. The, the Cox Senior camogie team had a fabulous victory. Uh, 
you know, homecoming last night then, and um, the captain, Amy O'Connor, was from my own club, St. Vincent's, and we had an unbelievable night last night. It was just, uh, like, there's a lot of videos being shared on social media from all the different clubs and the players. It was just really special. And the thing about it, Garland, is sometimes the north side, and in particular not Nahini, uh, people try to give us a bad reputation. And when you see Denise O'Sullivan, what she's done in Australia, and when you see Amy O'Connor, who's from Ascension Heights, the road that would connect Churchill and Nochnihini, and how proud Amy is of being from Nochnihini and St. Vincent's, and to score 3-7 in an All-Ireland final, to get player of the match, uh, to lift the O'Duffy Cup. Like, these are the real positives that are happening, and it was... Oh, it was so emotional. Myself, my wife, Michelle, and my daughter, Aoife, uh, were up there. We know Amy. She's a personal friend of ours. She's an absolute lady. Like She was there last night at the celebrations. Amy doesn't drink or smoke. She was there with a glass of, of Coke or water. And they danced the night away. They sang the night away. And I think they're great role models. And I think this is something that the Camogie Association, Ladies Football, the GA, and all sport need to build. We need more young girls and we need more women playing sport. And for anyone, any parent out there, if you look at Amy O'Connor, doesn't drink and smoke, a college graduate, uh, just a beautiful person, and... The, the mentality she has towards training and life, any parent could aspire for their children, boys or girls, to be like her. So, and can I say this? All the people who travelled, over 30,000 people at a camogie match, it was just, it was fabulous up in Dublin. And we are really proud of, of not just Amy, of the whole team, because there's players from the north side, the south side, the whole county, and they've been a credit to all of us. Absolutely. And I think, I think the city and I think the Lord, the Lord Vera Karen McCarthy, uh, really spoke very passionately uh, yesterday about you know how brilliant these young women are. Yeah, they're all role models, that's for sure, Thomas. It's great to talk to you, and thanks for joining us this morning, Thomas. Thomas Gould there, um, Sinn Féin TD for Cork North Central. Amy O'Connor will be joining us live on the show, uh, we hope, in the next 40 minutes or so. Some of your comments in in regard to housing, uh, Norma says, Gareth, would you mind asking Thomas, will anything be happening with the flats in Baker's Road, please? Thanks, we will uh, put it to him off air, Norma. I would imagine it it is, it's it's probably next in line, uh, if I was to put my few bob on it. Um... Uh, good morning all, Gareth. It's been a pleasure as always to hear you again. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. Well, I'll be back in October, so I'll be practicing for those couple of days as soon as I uh, quit today. Um, Blue Badge Parking, Shannon says, I see this every day. People are so rude and park where they like. In Wilton the other day, two ladies who were perfect uh, with no Blue Badge parked in a spot ran off and laughed. It's sickening when you have someone with disabilities and seeing people abuse it daily. They get away with it because they don't get it checked. Do you know something, Shannon, and I've given this a lot of thought, uh, I think it's only when people, individuals, find themselves uh, in a compromised position, either after a car injury or after an accident or when something sad happens in their lives, that's when they begin to see life differently. I really do think that. There are lots of great people out there who will go out of their way to help, but unfortunately, they're becoming few 
uh, and far between, that's for sure. Now, we only recently talked about shoplifting in Cork and how it's a big problem for Cork retailers. It's not all bad news, though. Uh, Wyan has a story of reform and redemption. Is that how you'd put it, Wyan? Good morning, Gareth. Yeah, that would about describe it. Um, tell me the story. The boy this who is, wrote a letter. Ah, oh, this is an amazing story. You Please tell it. Well, this little boy wrote to us. Um, we we normally, you know, that, that sort of thing happens all the time. Children put stuff in their pockets. Not intentionally, I hasten to add. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's in the nature of the business. And usually small things. But this time we got a letter from a customer, Oliver, apologizing profusely for his mistake and saying he will never do it again. And it was just lovely. It made us smile. You know, it's... it's yeah. He... he- the, the the contents of the letter, he pretty much confessed that he had taken something from the shop. <laughs> he did. He confessed um, that he'd taken it. He returned it. It was a one green marble. Um, he returned it um, with a letter of apology and told us he would never do it again. And My you know, <laughs> a green marble. <laughs> it's just lovely. Yeah, one green marble. So obviously, thirty-five cents. He must price. have. He must have got home. I haven't seen marbles since I was 12, <laughs> 10 years of age. So he must have been, I'd say either his, one of his parents had some I would imagine, yes, I would imagine he said, Mom, look what I've got. And she went, where did you get that? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> he said, Pinocchio's. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's nice parenting. I mean, we would, like I said, we would regularly get that happening, that, that somebody walks out with something and usually a red-faced parent comes back with the person and apologizes and hands it back. Not always, I hasten to add. Sometimes they just think, oh, great. But um, but many times the red-faced parent arrives back with the child saying, I'm so sorry they did this. <laughs> so, but this was, this was novel. Yeah, obviously a toy shop is a wonderland, isn't it? It is. It's a wonderland. And I mean, you can't, like I said, you can't. I mean, I, I sympathize with parents. I mean, children, children, will just automatically do that it's not it's not intentional it's not nasty it's just what happens and we had a little boy years ago with his granny pushing him in front of him who as she pushed him out the door with his buggy swooped down and picked up a very large truck (laughs) and clasped it to his bosom as he was going out the door thinking yes got in there and his grandmother looked down and realised about halfway through the door what he'd done and was horrified. <laughs> I just thought it was very funny myself. Yeah, so he, you know, he was he paraded just, back into handed back. Oh my God, she turned around immediately. <laughs> and then, but it was so funny. I mean, the look of satisfaction on his face as he did it was just, the, and the slickness of the move. <laughs> yeah. Can, can I, I'm just going to read the letter. We have a copy of it here from this young man. Dear owner of Pinocchio's toy shop, I have stolen an item from your shop. I swear I will never do something like that ever again. My sincere apologies, Oliver. Uh, <laughs> dear God, your heart melts, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I mean, it really, it, it's just lovely. I mean, like I said, and it's it's good parenting, you know, to, to, to yeah. say, he won't do that again. I mean, he will remember to the day he drops, I'd say, that, oops, I made a mistake there, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and I, I think it's just so nice. And it, as I say, it just made us smile. We just thought it was just lovely. I mean, and I think, I, I mean, the address, the return address was in the States, but it was posted in Ireland. So I imagine they found it when they got to the hotel and realized yeah. <laughs> what oh, he'd done. So it's just such a beautiful little letter. Uh, it's but- lovely. Um, he's not barred from the toy shop, is he? No, no, no. We 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 sent him a letter now, just saying that we were delighted that he apologised and that it takes a big man to stand up and apologise for your mistakes. Yeah, and that you're welcome back anytime. Wow. Oh. <laughs>
Well, well done to you for that. I suppose you're busy with buckets and spades and windmills at this time of the year, are you? Windmills? We don't really have much in the way of buckets and spades these days, funny enough. Well, we we're not too near a beach, I suppose. That's true. No, we're not too yeah. near a beach, to be fair. Yeah. Wind, windmills. We still do old-fashioned windmills. But, mm. um, but yeah, buckets and spades, Like unless we can find um, tin or metal ones that don't cost a fortune we won't do them anyway if they're, pl- yeah. if they're plastic we would avoid them yeah and um, things like armbands and and, and that uh, sw- no I mean really no I mean really you know, smiths and people do so much yeah. of that sort of stuff I mean for us we're too traditional to to, to do and, and a lot of that stuff is plastic and like we try to avoid plastic yeah. as, mm. as as far as is possible though I have to say squishy toys for some obscure reason at the moment seem to be the tactile things squashing cats you name it squashing anything seems to be the the thing at the moment for for lots of children i don't know why no idea yeah yeah stress related how is um i know there was a problem there in the past on paul street with cleanliness things seem to have improved quite a bit Um, haven't they it it has you know i mean like in general i mean it's not it's it's always spotless first thing in the morning or ge- generally it's always spotless first. I wouldn't say it's spotless every day but it is generally spotless first thing in the morning and by lunchtime you start to get littered and to be fair to city council that is not city council they're not running around chucking litter everywhere you know if people could learn to put it in the bins that would be a major improvement but they just don't seem to be capable i mean there's a bin 30 meters from our door but they still put it behind our flower boxes yeah, you know, um, and I, I don't know. I mean, litter is a pet hate of mine. Yeah, um, and I just understand. don't get it. Yeah, but in general, Paul Street is relatively clean. I mean, they have they seem to be cleaning the surface a bit more often now than they used to. I mean, at one stage we hadn't had a, a power wash for twenty years, and I'm not joking, twenty years. Twenty. But wow. now it seems to be, you know, it happens. I mean, it happened about three or four weeks ago, and it, it happens every three or four months. It gets a proper deep clean mm-hmm. you know and it makes a huge difference to take the muck off it and you know it's the oldest paved bit of the city yeah absolutely uh wine great to talk to you this morning and thank you uh, that's such a beautiful Likewise. story nice uh, nice to as you're getting into a good busy stretch now so uh continued success to all the staff there thank you very much thanks a lot wine wine stands well there from pinocchio's toys on paul street just a couple more of your comments fiona dodd says the new little in Ballancolic is fantastic for parking. Loads of parking for parents and children. Also disabled parking spaces and your standard parking spaces are wider than the normal spaces. So a win-win for everyone. Well, that is good news. Uh, just a note to remember too, says Fiona, not all disabilities are obvious. Uh, yes, that's so true. Some people may be suffering with conditions that are not evident. Just be kind. General parking comment from Tom. While you're on the topic of parking, what about the fact that if you want to park outside your own home, you have to pay 60 euro for a permit? And if it's two cars, it's 120. I don't think that's fair at all. The council imposes these rules and others are free to park on the road outside their home. No problem. Now, crowds have gathered outside the home of the late Sinead O'Connor this morning. Her funeral cortege will pass by the Bray Seafront in County Wicklow. Our colleagues in FM 104 in Dublin spoke to these people who explained why they loved the singer-songwriter Sinead 
so much. Well, I always really looked up to Sinead. I always admired her because I felt she was ahead of her time, the way she spoke out. But I just thought she was such a lovely, gentle person. And obviously, I loved her music. I think it was probably just her punk spirit. She didn't really back down in the face of adversity. I think she was a, a woman who expressed the full gamut of her emotions, whereas a lot of us just would hide it. Yeah, that kind of... Um that hits it fair and square on the head, that's for sure. A couple of comments from fans of Sinead O'Connor who are gathering outside her home in uh, her former home along Bray Seafront. Beautifully positioned house. She loved it for the years. She lived in it for 15 years, looking out at uh, the Irish Sea every morning. And a lot of great songs were penned in that house. You can be certain of that. It's one of those autumnal days. Just looking out the window here. Heavy grey cloud. Very calm. Very, very mild. 15, 16 degrees. It looks like a bit of rain there. And um, just chatting to Wayne here about uh, Storm Anton. And we were just wondering when the last storm in August was. I think it was 1986 when we had that uh, Hurricane Charlie. Do you remember the Hurricane Charlie? It doesn't have to do with Charlie Hahi, by the way. It was named after a guy in America called Charlie, the meteorologist who forecast it. Uh, I think that was late August 1986. Anyway, I hope you're um, you're well and you're on, if you're on your holidays and you're chilling out and you're kicking back a little bit and you're enjoying the last couple of weeks before the madness of September kicks in. Now, imagine being a farmer. This is something I always wanted to be as a, a child because we used to holiday in West Cork on a beautiful farm there which doubled as a and b uh, The press is pretty bad at the moment and I'm joined by someone who thinks we risk losing our amazing farmers to this endless vilification and that's Helen O'Sullivan. Hi Helen. Hi there, how are you doing? I'm fine. I, you, you know, it's just something I've always sort of had a very magical kind of notion about being a farmer when I was a, a young a young kid, um, bringing the cows in for milking and that. But okay. it, it's uh, it's certainly not not as mystical and as magical as... Well, I'll give you a little bit of advice there. If you have any sense, keep away from it. Because, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because of the mental pressure and stress yeah. the farmers have to go through, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. I, Helen, you're, you're a suckler farmer in Bantry, just outside Bantry. Right. You there. Um, tell me, you talking about the psychological stress, uh, it's hard to imagine, but I know it's very much a reality, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, you know, like I, I said, it's, it's very stressful being a farmer. We, you know, we totally rely on the weather to bring in our forage, you know, to lift cattle out the graves, to spread slurry. Um, as you know, it rained non-stop from last October to about the 1st of February, I think. And, you know, then we got a bit of dry weather. I suppose we got our summer a little bit too soon in May. So we kind of had a bit of a drought and then we got kind of rain again kind of from the middle of June onwards until until now really, you know. So yeah. I know a lot of farmers, even myself there now, we try to get in some stuff over the weekend. It was hit and miss, you know, with the silage. Yeah. And um, it's kind of grab when you can. I've, I've been speaking to loads of other farmers. They don't know what they're going to do. They can't even get into the fields because the fields are so wet. I, and, I, I, I always want, if I'm sort of travelling by train different times of the year, as you say, that period where we got non-stop rain literally from last October, it, it, the train was travelling along up through the Midlands and it looked like I was looking out on lakes. Yeah, you know, even there's, there's some contractors being pulled out of fields up the country and, you know, it's just horrendous. And I mean, the farmers need this grass so they can put their cattle on it, but it's been held up because there's silage on it. They can't get the silage off. You know, they can't even travel fields because it's too wet um, you know their tanks are filling the, the pressure the stress is just it's unbelievable and nobody knows about this the mental pressure farmers are under and you know on top of that then we're being totally blamed in for the whole climate change 
just mm. to add to, to add to what we have to go through, which I think is totally wrong. Well, that's complete nonsense, isn't it? I mean, absolutely. The, the, the scaremongering that's going on in relation to climate change um, and global warming is is just it's insane. It's so wrong, and you know the problem is there's an awful lot of misinformation being put out there. You know, from our own national broadcaster, from certain environmentalists, it's like as if they're paid to say all this you know, bad stuff about us. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're literally being labelled as environmentalist ter- terrorists. So, yeah. it's so wrong. Helen, the, the whole s- cyclical thing about farming, farming followed, the, the, the year of a farmer would be very cyclical, wouldn't it? Or at least it used to be years back. That's gone out yeah. the window now. Well, absolutely. Like, I mean, you know, I feel now even, you know, if you mention the word farmer, we're kind of looked at as if, you know, we're the ones that are causing all of this uh, thing regarding climate change. You know, the cows are bad for the environment, meat is bad for you, we're destroying the water quality. You know, all these things are being thrown at us and there's no one at all standing up for us and there's no representation. And I suppose that's probably what led to um, Farmers Alliance, then, which is a farm organisation group which has been newly formed, um, being formed, you know. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a solitary life, isn't it, for, from most It's farmers. a very solitary yeah. life and, you know, a lot of people don't. I've often said I, I'm going to put one of those cameras, you know, either on my head or shoulder, so that when we're out calving down cows in the middle of the winter at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, you know, everyone else is tucked up inside in their bed. We might have another one calving at six or seven o'clock in the morning. You still have to carry on do your day's work. There's no one. No one even takes that into consideration. Yeah. Again, you have to deal with all the other pressures that life will throw at you, and then to come out then and to be labelled environmental terrorists for what we're trying to do. And what we're doing is producing quality food, quality, healthy, nutritious food. And here we are being put down the whole time. I think it's wrong. I, I completely you know? agree with you. I think it's absolutely appalling the way you're being treated. Yeah. Is, is, do you have a typical day? I doubt, I doubt typical comes into the vocabulary at this stage. What, would it, what, what, for example, is today, what does today hold for you? Well, today is not going to be too bad. It's kind of, it's getting dry now. But I suppose a typical day for me would be getting up at six o'clock in the morning. You know, you go out and check your cattle. You make sure they have enough grass ahead of them. You have to be, you know, you're, you're basically a manager. You have to make sure you have plenty of grass ahead of them. You have to get in the fodder. You have to, you know, get fencing done. There's lots, there's no two days ever going to be the same. Right. You know, and then you, you have other pressures then that are coming at you from other angles. But the weather is the key factor that really kind of um, controls everything we do. What, so, do fa- what, what does Farmers Alliance hope to achieve? Apart so from we, bringing farmers together, which is very important. Yes, it's very important at a time where I think we're at a crossroads now with everything being thrown at us and all this kind of propaganda to keep us down. What we hope to achieve is we're going to be forming a political party um, because the problem is a lot of these decisions are made at the table and we have no decision there. And yeah. another problem as well is you know, unfortunately, all these decisions are kind of coming from Europe, the EU, and, and unfortunately our government are only just rolling it out for them then. It's kind of a case of jump, and our government says, how high, you know? Right. So, like, I mean, what they're trying to do at the moment is bring in um, the Mercosur deal. Now, if that comes in, if that, if that gets ratified, there'll be 99,000 tonnes of beef come into the EU, um, which is, is wrong, tariff-free. And I think this would be detrimental to Ireland. I think, you know, our European Commissioner, Ursula von der Leyen, she is kind of going on about how we want to be carbon neutral for 2050. But I think she's been very hypocritical by trying to rush this uh, deal through from the Mercosur. Um, just to give you an idea of carbon footprint there, um, for us to produce one kg of meat in Ireland, 
we produce less than 18 kgs of carbon. For the same amount of meat to be produced in Brazil, uh, they produce 1,000 kgs of carbon. Mm. So that'll prove to you we're the most sustainable food producers in the world. Yeah. And yet the EU wants to close us down, basically. Despite the fact that Irish meat is sought all over the world. Oh my God, it's, it's, this is it. Like, like I was speaking to somebody earlier and he said, we have the gold in our hands. Yeah. You know, we have the best food in the whole world. Nutritious. Um, it's, it's all regulated and traced. I mean, food coming in from the likes of Brazil, there's no traceability, no regulation. And what they actually have to go through, I mean, I think RTE investigate should really investigate what's happening there. There's cattle and lorries for seven, eight days with no water, no food. They're crossed over into a barge bin. Uh, you know, they have to cross this timber passageway onto a boat. A lot of them are too weak, they can't make it. They even try to push them into the water to drown them. I mean, the conditions are horrendous. Mm. And yet, you know, the EU want to do a deal with them so they can bring that unregulated beef into this country, untraceable. You know, the carbon footprint there is huge. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's crazy stuff. Um, but look, I suppose what we hope to do is we want to be able to, you know, get a fair price for our produce. We want to be able to represent the people that aren't being represented. And that's not just farmers. That's everybody. Even though we're called Farmers Alliance, there is one thing we all have in common, and that's food. Yeah, and I when mean, you look at it, I mean, farmers provide us with all of the basic necessities. Oh, absolutely. Milk, and cheese, you know, milk, milk cheese. Yeah. And, you know, you often hear that saying, no farmers, no food. And I suppose the pandemic time there, the COVID-19 pandemic and the, the war that's currently going on, I mean, that has shown us something that we need to be self-sufficient in food, that we shouldn't be relying on other countries, you know, to provide us with food or, or materials. We should be able to provide our, all of our own you know, yeah. and even there with our fishing industry as well, you know, going back to Europe, I mean, our fishing industry has been totally decimated as well. I think they have 57 fishing boats that have to be decommissioned. Yeah. And I mean, it's very galling. I'm living down here in West Cork and if you're travelling, you know, the Bantry Line, the Kusan Road, you see lots of uh, uh, Arctic lorries, Spanish ones, taking our fish from our port in Castanbeer. You know, no regulation, no red tape, load up their, their lorries, and yet our own fishermen are standing there watching them doing this. And if they caught one fish over quota, they'd be fined and nearly put into jail. So that's wrong. I think we need to look after our own people here in Ireland. You know, let us, you know, farm our farms and let us have our own fish, you know, in the waters instead of we're exporting everything mm. and getting rid of all of our good stuff, you know. Well, certainly, I think if, if you want resolution here, what you're doing is, 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 is the best idea. Forming a political party, particularly yeah. with so many farmers all over Ireland. Absolutely. And the importance of farming to everybody living in Ireland, I think, um, I, I think it could be a win-win situation, Helen, over a short period of time. Definitely. And I mean, you know, for our rural economies, and again, going back to the COVID-19 pandemic, it proved another thing. We can all work from rural Ireland. Why close down rural Ireland? Let's open it up. Let's open those closed down buildings. Let people work from there. Let them work from home. You know, people need a quality of life. It, it can't be all stress. Even people there, like I said, not living in rural Ireland, even in the urban settings, interest rates have gone up nine times so far this, this year. I mean, people are taxed their eyeballs. Like, mm. they can't take any more of zero quality of life. You know, I think, I think it should be made easier for the people of this country. I think we should open up rural Ireland instead of closing it down. I mean, back here in Bantry, we have a fantastic hospital, which we could do an awful lot more with it than pushing everybody up to CUH. Um, you know, create more jobs down here, take away the gridlock, you know, reduce your carbon footprint. It, it would be a win-win situation. I'm sure you have the same case there with Mallow Hospital. 
um, that we could offer the same opportunities up around there. Yeah, well, they're certainly they're making great, uh, great progress in Mallow Hospital. Um, Absolutely. Every time I pass it by on the train, it's getting bigger and bigger, and and that's and, that's yeah, the way it we, should be. We've the same down here in Bantry. You yeah. know, it's unbelievable. You know, state of the art hospital down here. It should be utilised an awful lot more. The staff are amazing there. Fantastic location for West Cork, South Kerry. You know, that should be that should be utilised a lot more. Yeah. And again, just going back to the rural Ireland, um, the whole thing, I think we should be the ones leading the way in, in producing food for beef in Europe because of our grass-based base system. You know, we're the most environmentally friendly and we have the less carbon footprint. Uh, in return, we'll reduce global emissions, create employment and have a healthy population. Mm. I really do think that Irish beef should not be used as a sacrificial lamb. Uh, one caller here says, Helen, uh, the proposal is that Br- Brazil will become the country that will produce all the beef in the world. And how they propose to do that, this is to increase the bovine stock to 290 million head of cattle by 2025. That's only two years away. And yes. 350 million cattle head of cattle by 2028. Now, to do this, they need to eradicate the rainforests of Brazil. Mm. That's a horrific thought. That's just unbelievable. I mean... You know, Brazil, the, the rainforest, they're the world's lungs. Yes. And here they are cutting it down to make way for beef production. Here we are in Ireland, the most sustainable producers in the world, and they want to shut us down and bring it in from elsewhere. It just doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's similar to the peat coming from last year when they closed down our horticultural section, briquettes coming from Germany, the wood chips coming in to find. I mean, I could go on for the whole day. Yeah. You know, what they're doing is absolutely ridiculous. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, they're tearing the heart out of our country. That's absolutely, sure. and I yeah. think it's so wrong. And I think we need to stand up now. If we want everyone saying we need change, we need change. But you know, you you and I are not going to be able to do this on our own. Mm. We need everyone to come out oh, to make this change. People power, Helen. Lovely people to talk power. to you. Yeah. Hopefully, talk you too. To you Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. That's Helen Thanks. O'Sullivan Bye-bye. there, uh, a farmer from Bantry in West Cork and a member of Farmers Alliance. Look out for them in the next general election. I think they will be a very powerful lobby and a very powerful political party. What an amazing camogie weekend. Have a listen to this. Well, I always really looked up to... Sh- Captain of the Cork team, Amy O'Connor. Just a huge thank you to everyone who's come out here today. Um, we knew coming down here that we have a, a brilliant crowd. We always do, but it's been too long. Uh, so this is year number five. Um before we had a, a cup again and you know I remember these memories very fondly My name is Claire Sheehan I'm from Ballincollig but my daughters play for Bishopstown It was a fantastic occasion because we've travelled up and supported the team throughout the whole season and uh, we travelled up the last number of years where unfortunately they weren't victorious um, but yesterday they uh, left nothing out there they gave everything and they deserved it because they've worked really really hard um, so it was fantastic that they got their just reward after a great season They're brilliant role models aren't they? They are um, I'm very lucky I teach in Kinsale Community School and I um, work with Kin- uh, Fiona Keating and Saoirse McCarthy both from Corsi Rovers so they're absolutely fantastic role models for all girls in sport and to retain girls in sport to see the commitment and the determination and the sacrifice they put in every day is phenomenal. Carrie Sheehan. And Carrie do you play Camogie? Yeah. 
Brilliant. And what did you make of the, the match yesterday? It was really good. It was very good to watch. And can you pick out uh, some of the moments out of it? I suppose that hat-trick that the captain got was pretty cool. Yeah, the three goals that Amy O'Connor got were incredible. And they were just, they happened so fast. Rosie Sheehan. I think it was the best match like ever that they've ever played. And what did you make of the, I suppose, the style of play and the hat-trick was pretty cool? Yeah, the backs were like amazing. There was no ball that ever went in. They just swiped it and like, cleaned it out. And I'm here in Kent Station with the Lord Mayor of Cork Councillors, Gary McCarthy. And these girls have, yeah, they've delivered. Um, but you could see yesterday, look, they were hungry. They, they wanted it. And they, they, they never um, stood back from the task yesterday. Um, and they're, yeah, like, proudly bringing like, the O'Duffy Cup back home to Leaside. It's brilliant. Now you start your term in office. It's a real great start. <laughs> Rebels of boo, I have to say. <laughs> As your county mayor, I was delighted to be in Cork Park yesterday. When that team, with their... I used to say the blood and bandage. They wore the red and white with proud. And we're the proudest county in Ireland. They brought that cup back to the River Lee. I'm delighted to be here in Cork tonight on the banks, celebrating the 29th victory. Yesterday, it didn't matter who was put in front of us. There was only going to be one winner, and it was Kirky. So give it up for the girls. Camogie Joy after Cork's amazing five goals, 13 points to nine point triumph over the Dacia. There wasn't, a, as I'd say, a cow milked or a baby bathed in Cork last night. I'm joined now by Mary Newman, 96FM's own Camogie guru. Morning to you, Mary. Good morning, Gareth. How are you? I'm very well. Everyone's still on a high. I, uh, no doubt. And I suppose... We'll be on a high to the trend next year when we retain it. So yeah. it's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic for the game. Really yeah. brilliant. Well, I've got captain of the team, Amy O'Connor, on the line. Good morning, Amy. Morning, Art. How are you? I'm, I tell, I'm morning, not. I'm not uh, I'm, it's, I can hear it. It's palpable. And like, is the heart still pounding? Yeah, to be honest, I couldn't sleep a wink again last night. Um, <laughs> it's just incredible. We're, we're delighted. I'm absolutely delighted. Well, you um, you kind of turned it into a mission. Um, I think kind of within seconds of Sirka McCartan's goal, you were just away and you you just played blissfully. I think everybody was absolutely stunned by your performance. It was amazing. Yeah, I suppose um, everyone is kind of saying that to me, but I kind of had the easy job. All the girls did all the hard work outside and, you know, uh, played some pizza passes into me and, um, I just had to put it into the back of the net and I suppose that's my job at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, it was it was brilliant. I, I was delighted that each and every one of us play, uh, played out of our skin and you know, all the subs that came on. And um, We've probably been promising a performance like that for a very long time and it just hasn't come yet. Mm. Uh, but I was delighted that it came yesterday. Was that, was, do you think, looking back, was was that your best performance ever? Uh, yeah, definitely it was. Um, you know, I think as a group, as I said, it's something we've probably been promising and haven't delivered on for, for a number of years. Um, and we always had confidence this year that it would come out and it came out on the biggest day of all. So we're delighted. This was, um, Mary, this was the first time um, since 1945, am I right, that the Dacia women were in Crow Park for the final? Yes, indeed. Um, 1945, actually, they were beaten by Antrim. I was looking back at the record uh, the other day and... Um, you know, it's probably hard to believe the county have waited that long. Um, Waterford would have won one or two months of championships kind of in the interim. Uh, you know, I was talking to my mother about it the other night because my mom obviously goes back a lot longer than I. She was a, a mentor with the Cork team and I suppose that's how we were all dragged into it. And my mother can remember, uh, she thinks it was around 68, 
69, maybe that's a big car for the Munster Championship, but they didn't get through to the All-Ireland. But, um, yeah, she was uh, entering beat them at that time. So, you know, I, I think, like, the hype that must have been in that country and the excitement, whereas Cork, we were very lucky, and, you know, it's probably a rite of passage in Cork if we're not in an All-Ireland final, there's something wrong. Mm. And um, I can imagine the hype that was all over Waterford last week. I was speaking to somebody who was in Tremor, and they said it was phenomenal, but... It, it obviously could have got them, you know, it had to get some a little bit, you know, pressure, yeah. pressure is on. So, a- um, a- Amy, I, I'm just thinking, um, Sirica McCartan, just looking at the stats over the years, this would be, uh, let me think now, she would become the first down woman to win a senior All-Ireland Camogie medal, isn't that right? I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I'm but I was, because I know that she, she comes from... Um, like a long lineage of, of players. And I was yeah. kind of thinking to myself, when was the last time they won? But actually, this was the first time, I think. I think. Maybe I'll, be, I'll stand to be correct. I on think that. she's the first Ulster woman in 66 years to win My one, which God. is brilliant. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. And I'm delighted for her because she puts in a huge effort. Um, she's so she she's just so hardworking, and you know she's always on it and always doing everything to to kind of better herself. So I was delighted of her and her family yesterday. Yeah, um, what was the mood like before the game? Like, was there a tendency to think that the the Daisha women were coming with um, that that they were going to go all out and give you a real run for for the, for the, for the afternoon that was in it? I suppose our mood was wasn't really focused on Waterford at all. We we focused completely on ourselves. Um, and we knew that if we delivered a, a performance, then that would get us over the line. So to be honest, we actually didn't think about Waterford. Um, we just focused completely on ourselves and we've done that all year. You know, when we played Kilkenny in the quarterfinal, Galway in the semifinal, it was just purely all about Cork. And I think that really benefited us. Yeah, it was. This is a county-wide affair, isn't it, for for the team? I mean, you, there would be, there would be women from all over the county, from teams all over the county, playing for the the, the, the match there over the weekend. Do do you have much contact with each other during the year? Would you be in contact a lot? Yeah, like I suppose you see these people five, six times a week when you're training. Or in- you're doing extra ball alley sessions you know extra free taking sessions so you spend for 10 months of the year you spend five or six days a week with these people and and you grow a bond and our group this year has just been incredible and it's taken a long time to build a group of this caliber um but yeah we were just delighted to get over the line because when you spend so much effort so much time with people and you see the effort that they put in um you're just delighted for people because all of the hard work is paid off Mm. and i i hear that it was a record attendance for the the match on, on sunday wasn't it yeah, I think we got over the 30,000 mark, which That's is brilliant. Right. Um, yeah, so brilliant again for, for female sport, you know, with the World Cup going on, you know, it's kind of having a domino effect. So, no, we were delighted. And, you know, for, for people in Cork, they really travelled in their numbers as they always do. So, yeah, we were just delighted with And the mood on the train coming home? A very happy mood. <laughs> <laughs> there was a few sing songs. Um, yeah, I'd say so, yeah, yeah, we were just, again, I suppose relief as well, you know, relief yeah. to finally get over the line again after five years and, um, just sheer and utter joy. Yeah, and and uh, usually the train only stops for two minutes at Mallow, but it got an extended stop there on Sunday. Didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it got an extended stop. In fairness, at Mallow, there was a huge crowd as well, so yeah. uh, it was important for us to get off and and pay our thanks to those people that have come out. And you know, they were a lot of them were at the game yesterday, and um, it was really it was really nice. Amy, enjoy all the celebrating. Well deserved. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much, Gareth. Thanks a lot, Mary. Lovely to talk to you too. Have a good day and uh, enjoy the celebrating as well. 
Well, yeah, well, it's back to, back to basics now for all of us. It was back to club <laughs> activity for those of us that That's you right. know are on the ground level walking at it. And you know, just one thing before we go, Gareth, yeah. I, I just think special mention is due to the Mackey twins, really, from Douglas. Um, you know, we've heard for years and years about the Downey twins, but they were winning their sixth medal together on the field as wow. twins and sisters. And I think that really deserves special recognition. Absolutely. You know, they're two phenomenal girls, Katrina and Pamela Mackey. And, um, you know, I suppose a special mention to them, you know, they're two great Cork girls and have given huge service to Cork and Mogi. So it was brilliant for twins to win those six medals together. A unique achievement. Great. And I'm sure the Mackey you know? family are very proud of them this morning. Oh, Thank- yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And club, Douglas, you know. Yeah. Great. Mary, great, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Mary Newman there. Uh, 96FM's Camogie uh, K- correspondent and Amy O'Connor, that amazing captain who, uh, I suppose it, it was like a one-woman blitz for a while and everybody was just stunned by her performance, but not just Amy's, but I think it was a team effort and boy, did they did they put it up to Waterford, that's for sure. Uh, so proud of the team and Amy, a great captain, delighted to watch them and witness a great game on Sunday in Crow Park. Congratulations, that's from Councillor Tony Fitzgerald. Thank you for that message, Tony. Very much role models, a lot of you are saying, uh, and I think they carry that very proudly with them, that they've worked so hard. And uh, I I think so many great young Camogie players of the future coming up uh, behind them and watching everything they're doing. Just such a great story. And it's lovely to hear from so many of you uh, just responding and reacting to all the different items this morning. On the school run, Jerry was talking to me earlier on about various ideas about uh, sort of bringing in bus companies who might ferry children to school rather than relying on parents, clogging up the small, uh, the, the narrow road systems around the city. Uh, in Scandinavia and the United States, Garrett, the schools start uh, an hour before work, 8am, so that alleviates the traffic and then the children would get more time at 10am break and lunchtime to socialise Sounds good. In some places, the children are provided with breakfast called Breakfast Hour, and this is a paid service. I was in uh, Austria a few times over the last few years, and their children start school at 7 a.m., and they finish up at about 1 o'clock. So you're guaranteed to get them to bed early because they're tired, and uh, they get to school before the traffic in the morning, and they get home before the traffic in the afternoon. So good point there. On the blue badge for disability parking, caller says some doctors are charging €100 to fill out the form for a blue badge, others 60 Even if you have a medical card, this should be regulated. Now, are we being fleeced left, right and centre? Prices are high for sure. And I'm joined by Damien Lane, who thinks we should be a bit more conscious of this. Uh, Some newspaper columnist, Damien, good morning. Good morning. How are you, Gareth? I'm very good, thanks. This is uh, this is certainly looking um, looking at newspaper reports today in relation to 77 percent of shoppers struggling to meet b- weekly food bills. Um, it, it seems to me like we are being fleeced. Would you agree? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote an article last Friday, uh, essentially, basically on the back of a Eurostat report. Um, they're the guys who, who basically survey the entire European Union and come up with kind of a, a league table of how pricey everything is. And Ireland is now number one in the uh, highest price charts in the Eurostat survey. Um, number one is not a kind of a, a nice place to be in a league of anything. Um, that, you know, basically 46% higher than the European average Ireland stands right now. 
you know, inflation stands at about 6%. So prices here are essentially 40% above what inflation demands. 40. So wow. at the heart of it, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, why are we 40% above what inflation demands? And my thesis is essentially we're ripping each other off. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Like, I mean, businesses will bring, you know, high energy costs. Yes, there are high energy costs, but they get government grants to offset this. Plus the price of what they pay for their gas and electricity is less than the prices paid by ordinary consumers like you and me. So it doesn't really wash. They also blame high wages for staff. Yeah, that's true. But many businesses rely on lower paid um, lower paid staff to staff their bars, restaurants and shops. So, I mean, the prices we pay um, are just extortionate. Yeah. You know, I mean, I grew up in the 1980s here and Ireland was very good value for money back then. Even in the 1990s, it was relatively inexpensive, you know. I mean, five quid got you three points on a night out and you had change in your back pocket afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's true. I, I, you just reminded me of that, a fiver. I mean, you go out with a fiver, you wouldn't need any more money. Correct, correct. I mean, then in the noughties, like, I mean, things began to really quickly change price-wise, you know. The boom happened. And we developed a kind of national psychosis. We all went mad. Mm. Or at least most of us did, you know. I mean, the banks, of course, fueled the madness, doling out cheap money left, right and centre. And then the price of things just exploded and the country really never looked back, despite the fact that the property market collapsed in, you know, mid-2008. But it didn't really force prices down, mm. you know. Prices have remained high ever since. There's an Aviva report out, a survey that they carried out, and some of the results, they're in all the papers today, 7%, only 7% of people surveyed said that the cost of living crisis hasn't impacted them. So 93% of the population are feeling the pinch in a big way. Well, they are. I mean, the price of things, I mean, I myself, I'd be on a relatively decent good wage here, you know, on paper. But in reality, you know, I'm a pauper like everybody else. I mean, if you go abroad, it really brings it into stark reality. I was in Portugal recently. I mean, there's probably a lot of your listeners, uh, you know, go to the Algarve and they go to various places in southern Spain for their holidays. And more and more now because of the price of things at home. Um, and it was cheap as chips on the way. On my way in Dublin Airport, I, you know, it was an early morning flight. Well, not too early; it was mid morning. But I was, I, you know, I was tired. I was hungry, and I wanted to, I wanted something to drink before I got on the plane. Uh, I went and I had a, a breakfast roll, the humble breakfast roll, um, and a pint, and it cost me twenty euro. <laughs> I was just going to say, I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, I know you that know, feeling. Yeah, and it's the same. I have to say, in Cork Airport as well, they they're they've just outpriced people's ability to afford more than one drink. Uh, we we were travelling to Portugal at some time back, and the same thing. I mean, with two drinks, it came yeah. to something like fifteen euro. I know it's crazy. It's crazy stuff. I, 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 I was going away with a friend, a friend of mine. I hadn't seen him in ages. We, we decided to feck off away from the sun or away from the rain, and get some sun on our backs. But it was too hot over there, so we, we ended up in, in in a kind of a small bar right in the centre of Porto, the second, basically Cork's equivalent in Portugal. Mm. Um, and we ended up watching football in this small little bar in the centre of Porto. And it was run by a father and son. They were off their feet. Loads of people coming in and out, mainly locals. And the place has been in their family for generations. 
Um, and their speciality was basically beer and the local wine. And then they did this cured ham. A bottle of beer cost one euro fifty, right? And we we had, I think we had a, I don't know, we had maybe eighteen bottles of beer between the two of us. And it was a long afternoon, and we had two large plates of the house ham, right, cut mm. on the premises, and it was served with like fresh olive oil soaked bread rolls, beautiful stuff. Yeah, it nearly fell off my stool when the bill came. Have a guess how much we paid for the eighteen beers and two ham rolls. So, um, I'd say probably on, thir- 30 euro you're bang on 33 euro for 33. the both you know yeah. well, I think I've, I've, 18 quid 17 yeah. quid each a euro for a pint I've, yeah 1 euro 50 for a bottle of beer it had actually gone up and he was complaining locals were complaining it used to be a euro now it's 150 and they were blaming all the um, all the Brits and the Irish coming over for the for the extra 50 cent on their bottle of beer mm. You know, another um, demo. Another thing people are buying abroad is pre- pharmacy products, prescription and non-prescription medication. Um, when you look correct. at, it, um, I know a man who brings back a box of Ventolin asthma inhalers every time he's away in Spain. Other people bring back painkillers that you would have to have a prescription to get here, and the prices yeah. of them is is un- unreal in terms of value. Well, they, well, they are indeed. I mean, here, I mean, you know, I I, I get medicines. Um, every month like most people yeah. you know you have your your book of medicines you need to get every month uh, now i've kind of stopped going to the local pharmacy because um so what i was getting every every month was kind of essentially costing me 33 euros right mm-hmm. now there's a new there's a new um kind of uh, should i should I name them? Yeah. They're based in Ireland. Mm. Yeah, okay. Chemist Warehouse. They're, they're called Chemist Warehouse. Yeah. I don't know whether they're in Cork or whether they're outside they, Dublin. They are, yeah, they're in they're Middleton, two, yeah. They're in Middleton, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Well, go go and get your medicines there because um, the book of medicines I get, which normally cost me €33 Euros in the pharmacy, now cost me €17. Euro. Yeah. So that's the markup, you know. I mean, obviously obviously they're, they're buying in bulk and they have, you know, you know, they're, they're a bigger operation than your local pharmacy. Not to kind of, you know, not to say that all pharmacies are, are the same, but I mean, basically, I'm paying half the price yeah. for shopping around. But yeah, when you go abroad, it's far cheaper. You yeah. know, I mean, Spain is, is, you know, two euro for a, for an antibiotic um, prescription that you'd pay twenty euro here for. You know, yeah. so there's no wonder people are kind of shopping online for them, and they're going abroad and they're stocking up when they go abroad because because things here are just so so bloody expensive. Yeah. Now we are an island, in fairness, and things things that we get from abroad there are transport costs and so on, but not to the extent that we're forty percent above what inflation demands. I mean, and that's the bottom line. Is there a bit of shame involved in in being reluctant to say that people can't afford the prices they pay for things here? Um, like, do we need to challenge prices more? Yes, indeed, we do. I mean, you know, if as a nation we have a tendency to kind of grin and bear it when you get a you know you get a, a, a dried up chicken on on kind of microwaved potatoes and a few kind of crinkly peas and we kind of look at it and go, thanks very much. And that'll be 22 euro, please. Yeah. Instead of saying, no, that's awful. I'm not paying for it. Yeah. And walk up and leave. It's a kind of, it's a national trait. We're just too bloody nice when, when, yeah. when the heel, in the heel of the hunt, we're just too nice. 
So if you're too nice and you won't complain and you won't walk out when things are bad and you don't boycott a place if they're ripping you off, what happens is the place will just go, okay, fair enough, no problem, you know, and mm. just continue as if nothing, nothing happened, you know? Yeah, it's like, um, the, it's like the old Ryanair Panini. Have you ever had one of them? Uh, no, thankfully, no. <laughs> well, you're probably talking about 10 euro for it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. 10, it's 10 euro. Yeah, but they're very... I'll say one thing, okay, when you've been waiting at the airport and you've had a few drinks or whatever and the flight's delayed, uh, as is often yeah. the case, and you have another few drinks, uh, I tell you one thing, you'd eat five of them, you'd be so hungry by the time you get on the flight. But you're, Oh, you would, of course. But then, see, you're, you're in this... You're... you're, you're Trapped in this cylindrical tube, they can take anything in your pockets from you, whatever you have, and you'd give it well, to. This is you? it. Mm. You, you give it because you've no you've no choice. But I mean, I suppose the point really is, I mean, you don't mind paying for something if the quality is really, really good, yeah. right? Yeah. And there are yes, in fairness to a lot of it, you know, the, the, the quality of cuisine in Ireland has has you know soared in recent years. I mean, the restaurant fare now is fantastic. Mm. where it used to be just carvery, you know, and hot lights over food all day long. But those places still exist and, you know, um, charge an arm and a leg. So, I mean, we all know where not to go, but we always end up being there anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Can we interest um, you in a I mean, I live in Dublin. I don't. Wine? Well, there you go. I mean, and it's bog standard wine off the yeah. shelf. Yeah. Cash or card. You know, they probably... Yeah. They go around the supermarket next door and they buy it for ten quid off the sh- off the shelf and they're selling selling it for a, for ten quid for a glass and it's yeah. kind of bog standard stuff as well. It's it is, not, yeah. you it's know. true. Damien, great to chat to you. Thanks so much. You too, Gareth. Talk Thanks to you. a lot, Damien Lane from the Sun newspaper this morning. And it is true, really. I mean, we we pay because we're charged and we we're very reluctant to question why we're being charged so much. Um, one thing I noticed as well. There are two supermarkets that I would shop out of just, you know, whichever is the handiest. They're both right beside each other. And I noticed that one of them, which was the cheapest supermarket to shop out of up to about three or four or five months ago, is now right up there with the prices of the supermarket, which I would regard as being slightly more expensive. And by the way, I'm not saying what part of Cork City I'm talking about here because I do know owners in a lot of supermarkets, so I'm not going to even give the names to supermarkets. But I'd randomly pop in if I'm on the bus, and like yesterday I was around town, beautiful day around town, wandering around as I was again on Sunday, and uh, did a little bit of supermarket shopping while I was there. The old bus, you can't beat it. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Tuesday after a long weekend, it's always a tough one. Let me help with a 200 euro one for all voucher up for grabs and the perfect soundtrack flying you through the afternoon from 12 here on Cork's 96FM. Life feels better when you know your loved ones are protected. Well, now you can have peace of mind knowing your family's future will be looked after for as little as 10 euro 10 per month with Leia Life Insurance. Simply answer a few online questions, no medical required, and you'll get an instant decision. Join us online and you'll get a 10% discount. Visit leialife.ie now. 
Insurance provided by IPTQ Life SA. Leia Healthcare Limited, trading as Leia Life and Leia Healthcare, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Don't let cataracts blur your happiness. Skip the long waiting lists at the Cathedral Eye Clinic Belfast, one of Ireland's most advanced award-winning eye hospitals. Now offering a fast-track cataract service, avail of surgery within four to six weeks, with costs reimbursed through the HSE. Regain your vision and trust your eyes to the experts at the Cathedral Eye Clinic. Book your consultation today at cathedraleye.com. Sick of the cheesy chat-up lines? Are you a bank clone? Because you've got my interest. Do desperate daters give you the ick? Any chance you have a plaster? I just scraped my knee while I was falling for you. Find someone genuine today without the need for terrible chat-up lines at 96fmdating.ie Sorry, can I have your photo so I can show Santa what I want for Christmas? <laughs> I'll just leave, will I? Register for free today at 96fmdating.ie Join the conversation Email opinion at 96fm.ie This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan Coach 96FM Now welcome back A couple of comments um, in in relation to the Camogie celebrations wonderful celebrations Councillor Mick Nugent from Sinn Féin was on fantastic night Gareth at St Vincent's Clubhouse for the homecoming for Amy and the Cork Camogie team as Amy said herself she's proud to be from the north side and she's a role model to so many young girls and boys and hopefully many will follow her example that's uh, from Councillor Mick Nugent thank you for that Mick certainly is and uh, exemplary performance again and just what a game over the weekend fantastic and the drive you can even hear it there while she's chatting on air she says she didn't sleep last night either I would imagine it'll all probably hit her now sometime today or tomorrow uh, Anita says hi Gareth it was an absolute joy and privilege hearing you the last two weeks it's lovely to hear somebody different from time to time roll on October mind yourself stay well and thanks that's so kind that's Anita and Elliot her bunny in Toker thanks so much Anita uh, as a uh, as the Terminator says, I'll be back sometime in October, I would imagine. Now, um, sad day, very, very sad day. It's been a very, very sad week. It's been a very sad fortnight since, of course, the discovery was made by the Met Police in London. When they were called to Sinead O'Connor's flat, friends had been worried about her. Uh, She had been inside for so long that the coroner says that they couldn't the police actually said that they couldn't determine the time of death which is so sad to think that someone so loved and so talented and so talked about and so very much in the moment uh, could um, could have experienced such a sad end to their life with nobody around them, nobody they loved, nobody they knew um, it, that I find is probably the saddest ac- aspect of her untimely passing and her music and her beautiful life is being celebrated this morning and into this afternoon in her old hometown of Bray where she had a house, a beautiful house there uh, Bellamont on the seafront and uh, I've got Luke Delaney from Dublin's FM 104 on the, lo- the line Hi Luke Hi Gareth, how are you? I'm very well. You're actually there in Bray, are you? I am. I'm currently just outside of our old house, uh, alongside a few thousand people. Um, obviously, a very sad and emotional day here. But um, I arrived earlier on, and you know, it was very sad. People laying flowers outside the old house. But I suppose as the morning's gone on, um, it's more of a celebration of our life, which is kind of coming in and her amazing music. Uh, we were joined by 
a van with a, a couple of speakers on it, which played some of Sinead's greatest songs. And, you know, you have people from all walks of life here who never knew each other, dancing, singing along to it. And I think it really is something that uh, Sinead would have loved to see and definitely how she would have wanted to be remembered. Now, I know she she kept a very low profile around Bray, the town she lived in there in County Wicklow. In fact, I know she travelled an awful lot. Uh, but it wouldn't have been uncommon for her just to pop into one of the little ca- cafes or coffee shops. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I was actually speaking to a couple of neighbours and a, a couple of people who are from around here. And they said that they'd often see her in the supermarket. She'd always stop, say hello to, to them and, and to the children as well. And she really was immersed in the community. And the people of Bray obviously took her in as one of their own, although she wasn't originally from here. But um, only just to see the, the turnout here. She was a huge part of Bray, of, of Wicklow and, and the whole country in general. How many people are there, Luke? Can you just give us an estimate on it? If if I was to guess, and I'm not the greatest with numbers myself, but I'd say that it's definitely two to 3,000 people. You know, you've wow. got the whole Strand Road, which is a couple of kilometre stretch, and it's just packed with people here. Yeah. Uh, you've got people all from different apartments looking out as well. And like I was saying, people of all different age groups, different religions here, no matter where they're from, different walks of, of life, like I said, and it's just fantastic to see. Yeah, and I know she loved the prom, Bray Prom, probably one of the most famous proms in the, the country. She loved strolling up and down it. It really, yeah, it's fantastic here. And, you know, the flags here all kind of worshipping Sinead for, for the amazing life she had and for the role she played in so many people's lives growing up. Um, she really was something for people to look up to. She stood for a lot of values with a lot of other people agreed with it. And at the time, people weren't speaking out about it. So she represented a, a huge, huge chunk of the population and that's really represented here. Now, um, were, ru- well, rumour had it that um, Imelda May was going to be there today. Is she there? Have you, you bumped into her at all? I, I heard the rumours myself and I've, I've kept the eyes peeled, but um, I haven't spotted her just yet. But uh, I'll make sure to, to keep the eyes peeled, like I said there, and I'll, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> all right. Great to talk to you, Luke. Thanks a lot. Jared, thank you so much. All the best. Thank you. That's uh, Luke Delaney there from Dublin's FM 104. And uh, he's there on Bray Seafront, just close to the prom where uh, Sinead lived for the best part of 15 years. Beautiful, big, detached house there. Very old style house that she called her home. Very private place for her. And as I mentioned earlier, I would imagine a lot of great songs either composed or, as it were, set in motion while uh, she was living in the house there. Now, by the way, um, all of the independent broadcasting stations uh, around Ireland are playing her classic song, Nothing Compares to You, and that will be at 12.30 today, in a little less than uh, about about half an hour, 35 minutes. Simon will be playing Nothing Compares to You as a tribute and a way of honouring her uh, today uh, prior to her private funeral uh, with her family. So that's just about it. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed being with you for the last couple of weeks. Want to thank all the team. Um, today's show edited by Fergal Barry, produced and researched by Richard Vickery, and thanks to Wayne on Sound, and also to Emer O'Hay, who's on a willer and break as well. PJ Coogan will be back in the hot seat tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, and I'm already looking forward to seeing you sometime round about Halloween towards the end of October. So enjoy the rest of the summer holidays. From me, Gareth O'Callaghan, take care of each other, and we'll talk soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.